the Small Business Commission meeting on December 12th, 2022. The meeting is being called to order at 4.37 p.m. This meeting is being held in person in City Hall, room 400, and broadcast live on SFGov TV and available to view online or listen to by calling 415-655-0001. As authorized by California Government Code 54953E and Mayor Breed's 45th supplement to her February 25th, 2020 emergency proclamation, it is possible that some members of the Small Business Commission may attend this meeting remotely. In that event, those members will participate and vote by video. The Small Business Commission thanks Media Services and SFGov TV for televising the meeting, which can be viewed on SFGov TV 2 or live streamed at sfgovtv.org. We welcome the public's participation during comment periods. There will be an opportunity for general public comment at the end of the meeting, and there will be an opportunity to comment on each discussion or action item on the agenda. For each item, the Commission will take public comment first from people attending the meeting in person, and then from people attending the meeting remotely. Members of the public calling in the numbers 415-655-0001. The access code is 2493-078-5218, followed by password 7221. Press pound and then pound again to be added to the line. When connected, you'll be muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up, dial star three to be added to the speaker line. If you dial star three before public comment is called, you'll be added to the queue. When you are called for public comment, please mute the device that you were listening to the meeting on. When it's your time to speak, you'll be prompted to do so. Public comment during the meeting is limited to three minutes per speaker. An alarm will sound once the time has finished. Speakers are requested but not required to state their names. SFGov TV, please show the Office of Small Business slide. In with the reminder that the Small Business Commission is the official public forum to voice your opinions and concerns about policies that affect the economic vitality of small businesses in San Francisco. The Office of Small Business is the best place to get answers about doing business in San Francisco during the local emergency. If you need assistance with small business matters, particularly at this time, you can find us online or via telephone. And as always, our services are free of charge. Before item number one is called, I'd like to start by thanking Media Services and SFGovTV for coordinating this virtual hearing and helping to run the meeting. Uh, please call item number one. Item one, roll call. Commissioner Carter is absent. Commissioner Dickerson is absent. Commissioner Herbert's absent. Commissioner Huey. Here. President Laguana. Here. Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. Here. Vice President Zizunis. Present. President, you have a quorum. Thank you. The San Francisco Small Business Commission and Office of Small Business Staff acknowledge that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramaytusha Loni, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land, and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramaytusha Loni have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramaytusha Loni community, and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Please call item number two. Item two, approval of legacy business registry applications and resolutions. This is a discussion and action item. The commission will discuss and possibly take action to approve legacy business registry applications. Presenting today, we have Richard Crillo, legacy business program manager. Hello, Richard. 
Good afternoon, President Laguana, Vice President Zuzunas, Commissioners, City Staff, Members of the Public. I'm Richard Carrillo, Legacy Business Program Manager. I'd like to acknowledge Michelle Reynolds, who helps with the Legacy Business Program and with marketing communications for the Office of Small Business. Michelle was instrumental in helping review, collate, and process the Legacy Business Registry applications before you today. SFGov TV, I have a PowerPoint presentation. Before you today are six applications for your consideration for the Legacy Business Registry. Each application includes a staff report, a draft resolution, the application itself, and documents from the planning department. The applications were submitted to planning on October 19th and heard by the Historic Preservation Commission on November 16th. Item 2A is Artisans of San Francisco. The business, located in the outer Sunset neighborhood, was established in 1947. Artisans of San Francisco is a custom picture framing shop owned and operated by artists. They specialize in excellent service by providing creative designs while maintaining great attention to detail and the needs of their customers. They draw from their unique and varied artistic backgrounds to help customers select the best designs for their artwork. Their shop has also become a space for local artists to gather in and have an opportunity to share their work. The core feature tradition the business must maintain to remain on the registry, the Legacy Business Registry, is Picture Frame Store. Item 2B is Canton Bazaar. The business is a souvenir retail store located in the heart of Chinatown. Canton Bazaar was likely established in the early 1900s and it has been confirmed as being one of the largest Chinatown businesses to first reopen after the 1906 earthquake and fire. At Canton Bazaar, shoppers can find a wide array of souvenirs and art ranging from a pair of chopsticks to a seven-foot giltwood, giltwood Buddha and everything in between, including kimonos, ceramics, furniture, and jewelry. At Canton Bazaar, there is a souvenir or art piece for all visitors. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is gift shop. Item 2C is Chinatown Kite Shop. The business, located along iconic Grant Avenue in Chinatown, was established in 1971 by resident and community leader Albert Chang. Chinatown Kite Shop offers an expansive selection of charming and exquisite kites ranging from child-sized kites to colorful fish to traditional hand-painted Chinese paper kites. They also offer a wide range of souvenirs, gifts, and specialty items, including Chinese paintings, dra uh, dancing dragons, Chinese costumes, lanterns, animal hats and umbrellas, Chinese New Year decorations and calendars, collectible art tiles, mobile, case, mobile device cases, party items, and more, and walks too. Chinatown Kite Shop is a quintessential business and a staple of Chinese culture in San Francisco. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is Kite Store. Item 2D is Life. The business is a gift shop in the Lower Haight neighborhood established in 1992. Life specializes in fragrance and essential oils, custom fragrance blending, aromatherapy, clean beauty, home fragrances, locally made goods, and vintage clothing, as well as curating art shows with local artists and offering astrology and tarot readings. 
Life is a place for the community where customers, neighbors, artists, and friends can gather and all are welcome. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is gift shop. Item 2E is Mary Elizabeth Inn. The business is a 92-unit residential hotel in Knob Hill that was founded in 1914 by philanthropist Lizzie Glyde and designed by the famous architect Julia Morgan. Mrs. Glyde had lived her entire life, adult life dedicated to helping others. In effort to end the cycle of poverty for homeless and abused women, Mrs. Glyde used her personal resources to build a residential facility for women to live free of violence. The Mary Elizabeth Inn has been one of San Francisco's unsung heroes, providing permanent housing, supporting services, and free meals to women who are homeless, low-income, and, in many instances, survivors of domestic violence. The Mary Elizabeth Inn empowers women across all life stages to achieve self-sufficiency and security. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is housing and services for women. Item 2F is Peking Restaurant. The business has been a community and culinary hub in the Outer Sunsets since it opened in 1980. Peking Restaurant serves authentic Chinese and Taiwanese cuisine at affordable prices, including traditional Taiwanese street food. Their generous lunch specials offer filling portions, free soup, and egg roll appetizers, and fortune cookies and an orange slice with each meal. The interior decor features traditional Chinese landscape scenes and Buddhist art and sculptures, creating an atmosphere that is both welcoming and celebratory of Chinese art and history. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is restaurant featuring Chinese cuisine. All six businesses met the three criteria required for listing on the Legacy Business Registry, and all six received a positive recommendation from the Historic Preservation Commission. Legacy Business Program staff recommends adding the businesses to the registry and has drafted six resolutions for your consideration. A motion in support of the businesses should be framed as a motion in favor of the resolutions. Thank you. This concludes our presentation. We're happy to answer any questions. Um, before we go to public comment, um, one of the business owners um, was not able to attend this meeting. They asked me to read a um, very short um, paragraph. So um, Commission Secretary said that was okay, and I just wanted to make sure that was okay with everybody. Okay. Sure. Um, this is from Peking Restaurant. Peking Restaurant is a family-owned business that opened in 1980 in the Outer Sunset District of San Francisco that is very proud and grateful for its inclusion in the Legacy Business Program. We thank everyone who has supported our business and recognized its contribution to the rich local culture of our immigrant and working class communities. We hope to strengthen the diverse small business economy in San Francisco and continue to celebrate the owner's heritage and Asian immigrant community by serving authentic Chinese and Taiwanese cuisine to our neighbors and visitors to San Francisco. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> Commissioners, uh, any comments or questions before we go to public comment? Uh, is there any public comment? Please, feel free to step up. Public commenters just want to form a little line, then you can all come up. <clears throat> uh, good evening. My name is Eva Lee. I'm a longtime um, member of the Chinatown community, and I like to support the legacy businesses of both Chinatown Kite Shop and Canton Bazaar. As, I, as a teenager over 30 years ago, 
I worked at Canton Bazaar. And actually, my family had like eight stores along Grant. And we actually hired over 100 employees. And a lot of them were non-English speaking. And they learned to learn to speak English at a lot of our shops. And they went on to work at Macy's and other stores and had careers after that. And I can tell you for now, both the Kite Shop and Kanamazar have done very well in just being like anchors for Chinatown because like, uh, the Kite Shop is very unique. And you can't find any other uh, places like that that carry those kind of uh, items. And then for Canamazar, it has to be one of the largest emporiums for Chinatown that have unique gifts. And secondly, I can tell you, it was really fun working at Canamazar because in those days, I could actually meet, like, um, if you guys are too young, probably, um, um, Jack Benny, Red Skelton, and even uh, Barry Bonds came through Canamazar. So that was many years ago, but it's very sentimental to me. So that's what Canton Bazaar brings to me, some very happy memories. And matter of fact, they are on Hallmark Channel. I think it's called Big Fat Christmas. And they took one spot in Canton Bazaar. Not much, but it was, it was filmed in Canton Bazaar. And it's, right, it's on Netflix right now. So I think that was pretty cool. So when Jack Benny came in, did he do? <laughs> but you know what? Doggone it. I got his yeah. autograph, but I misplaced that autograph book. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Go ahead. Uh, my name is Albert Chang, the owner of Chinatown Kai Shop. Uh, I'm very, very honored of being named the legacy. And I never thought about that after 50, probably about 51 years in the same location. And uh, one thing I'm very, very proud of is uh, she's working there a long time. Sometimes comes the customer with their kids on their shoulder. And they says, when I first come to this store, I'm this big. <laughs> yeah, that's really warm you up. And especially the people move away from San Francisco and they come back, they say, are you still here? <laughs> so uh, I do appreciate it for you guys, you know, consider legacy for the store, and uh, I think it'd be good for San Francisco community. Great. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Go ahead. Good evening, commissioners. Thank you very much. My name is Dion Roberts. I am the executive director of the public nonprofit organization, Mary Elizabeth Inn, which owns and operates the Mary Elizabeth Inn. As near as we can determine, the Mary Elizabeth Inn is the oldest and longest running, longest continuously running, and possibly the only permanent supportive housing program for women only in San Francisco. Since 1996, partnerships with the city and county agencies, including the Department on the Status of Women, the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development, and the Department on Homelessness and Supportive Housing, and their predecessor agencies have supported the housing programs at the Mary Elizabeth Inn. While the program is permanent housing, many women stay only a short time until they overcome their situations and move to more independent housing. Thousands of women have made their home at the Mary Elizabeth Inn, ending the cycle of homelessness and violence. 
where they achieve confidence, independence, and self-sufficiency. The 2022 San Francisco Point in Time Homeless Count conducted in February um, identified 7,754 persons as being homeless. Of that number, a sampling of 768 persons responded to specific survey questions. The survey results revealed that 34% identified as female and 6% revealed that family and domestic violence was the primary event that led to their homelessness. Lizzie Glide, who spent her entire adult life devoted to helping others, saw a need for safe and affordable housing for vulnerable women in 1914 San Francisco. More than 100 years later, that need still exists. What does this say about our society, and what does it say about San Francisco, that in more than 100 years, violence, inequality, and marginalization of women has not been eradicated. In reality, there will always be a need for stable, affordable, and supportive housing for women in need in the, that the Mary Elizabeth then provides. Myself, along with the devoted staff and voluntary board members, have signed up for this challenge and are committed to preserving this vital business, maybe for another 100 years. Thank you very much. Let's hope, thank you. Good evening, commissioners. Um, my name is Rika Futamura, and I am the owner of The Life Shop. And it is, it is an honor to be here today in the company of other great businesses that have been operating in San Francisco for much longer than 30 years. I would just like to say a few things about our shop. We are a boutique retail business in the Lower Haight Shopping Corridor and just celebrated our 30-year anniversary. I don't know if anyone in this room has ever been to life, but I think what makes our business unique in the retail world is our custom fragrances, and it is also what we are most known for. We have over 100 different fragrance and essential oils spanning a large wall of our shop. And over the years, we have created thousands of custom fragrance blends and aromatherapy blends for our customers. It is what we are passionate about and takes great skill and experience to be able to provide this service. We are also a much loved community shop in the Lower Haight and a gathering place for neighbors and artists. We carry many locally made products handmade by San Francisco artists and makers and host seasonal art openings during the Lower Haight Art Walks. Um, our customer base is very diverse, coming from all walks of life. We have regular customers who have been shopping at Life since we opened in the 90s, um, as well as younger generation new to the city and everything in between. Life has always been a place where all are welcome, and we hope to keep serving our community for many more years to come. I would like to thank the committee for your consideration and for this opportunity. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hello, uh, my name is Dan O'Hara, and this is Ashley, Ashley Laird. We're from the Artisans Frame Shop. Uh, it opened in the 47 originally. We are the fifth owners now. We recently took over uh, in September, so we're quite new to it, but have been framers and artists ourselves for a long time. Uh, mostly just frame art there. The poster business isn't what it used to be. We still have some, 
Uh, we have taken on doing little artist meetups. So we do art shows every month. And the local community is really thankful for us for being there and continuing that. And we hope to make it grow and keep it going. Uh, yeah, we're, we're a frame shop, and that's what we'll continue to be. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for your consideration, too, for us, for the legacy yeah. business. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> is there any callers online? There are none. Great. Seeing none, public comment is closed. Commissioners, any comments? <coughs> Vice President Zazunas. Thank you to all the small businesses that came through tonight to represent. And I know it's not easy taking time out of your busy day. And um, thank you for the service that you provide our city. I, I, know, I know that it's been a long road to get here. Um, I think, Mr. Chang, are you, I think your business had to deal with a nightmare ADA case. Was that you? Yes. Yes. Wow. Well, I think that that's a precedent to 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 mark just you know you being here and having to go through um, all the business uh, obstacles that you all have had and um, I love to see the the continuity of um, generations and um, work workers taking over so it's a beautiful thing to have you all here thank you for for joining us and um, yeah looking forward to to voting for you <laughs> okay thank you Commissioner Huey. So thank you very much for um, obviously coming today, <laughs> but thank you very much for all of your efforts to um, become a legacy business and, um, and obviously for all of the service that you actually provide for all of our communities. So um, I guess, you know, I wanted to just share that, like when I was a kid, I grew up in um, Fremont, so I grew up in like Oakland, Fremont, Hayward, Union City, like in the East Bay. And um, on the weekends, we would generally go to Oakland Chinatown to buy our groceries. But like probably twice a year, my parents would take us to San Francisco Chinatown. And that was like the most special thing ever. <laughs> it felt like we went on vacation. It was like a whole, you know, weekend thing. And, um, you know, Grand Avenue was always obviously where we would start. And, um, and I remember going into Canton Bazaar, going to the kite shop ever since I was a little kid. And I still have, you know, trinkets and, and things that, I've, that are in my father's garage. Thankfully, not in, in my garage right now, but <laughs> my dad has kept everything. And now my kids both have um, kites of their own hanging in their rooms. And so, you know, I think the trips to Chinatown for me even though I didn't grow up here in San Francisco, it was part of, you know, my real identity as like a Chinese American, right? Like I felt like that was my home, but it was still like an adventure. It was a way for me to discover being Chinese American. So, um, yeah, I really appreciate seeing all of you here in the legacy business. Thank you very much. Eva, thank you very much, Lily, for all of your efforts in, in uh, you know, supporting the community. Um, and the other, the other piece, too, it was um, for life. Um, I have actually been to your store, 
and, <laughs> and I loved it. And I had no idea that you would be a legacy business. I mean, your shop is so fresh and so cool. Like, I love, I mean, not to say that, you know, that 30 years old would feel any different, but you've really, you have new, um, you know, new, uh, new vintage items, which I love. And so, you know, thank you very much for continuing in the boutique kind of retail space. I know that that's a very challenging um, place to be, but you've really anchored yourself. So, um, you know, thank you. And I'm going to try a custom fragrance. I, I had no idea, but I will try that one day. <laughs> I'll smell better for everybody up here. <laughs> um, and also wanted to just recognize that I, um, you know, hearing the story about the Mary Elizabeth Inn, so powerful. I mean, to know that this organization has been here for a hundred years, knowing that you've been supporting women, supporting women who probably really felt like they had no support at all, um, you know, it was very meaningful. And congratulations on doing that work. And, you know, I'm so proud to have you in our city. So thank you. Um, I think that's about it. But I think, you know, thank you for everybody. This has made a really nice holiday uh, legacy business, um, you know, piece for us. So thank you. Um, thank you, Commissioner Huey, and I, I, I have to say I, I have to agree. Um, it feels uh, very holiday-esque. Um, as a dad, uh, we would go to China all, Chinatown all the time to go shopping, and, and um, we've certainly been in, in both the Kite Shop and, and the Bazaar. Um, I think that's when I taught my three-year-old that we shall not shoplift. <laughs> yeah, he was always wanting to, to walk off with stuff. Um, and then uh, Peking Restaurant, I'm, I'm, uh, there was uh, one Christmas. We, we're often out of town over the holidays, uh, but there was one Christmas we had dinner there, so that was nice. Um, there's at least two businesses here, I think, that are going to get... Um, some business in the short run from us because I have a couple pictures I need to frame. Um, so timing is really good. Um, and uh, my wife is obsessed with clean beauty. Uh, so when I heard that, I'm like, I'm going to text her later and be like, oh, you got to check this place out. So, um, and uh, I want to echo um, Commissioner Huey's comments about how now more than ever, it's so critical to be providing support to our unhoused community. It's so amazing that that organization has um, been able to survive for so long, and it, and it speaks to the wisdom of Elizabeth Glide and everything that she did for this city and, and, and suggests a, a path that uh, perhaps we could uh, use as a role model for ourselves on what we can pass to future communities. So um, it's a little bit of it's a, it's a Wonderful Life, like kind of in <laughs> all, all the businesses. Um, so uh, like my colleagues, I'd, I'd like to thank you all uh, for everything you do for this community, um, for our city. Uh, and we are so privileged to uh, sit up here and, and, and get to listen to you tell your stories and hear your histories. 
it's fascinating. It never stops being fascinating. So thank you. And with that, um, somebody want to make a motion? I'll make a motion to approve all of the legacy businesses for tonight. I'll second. Moved by Commissioner Huey, seconded by Commissioner's Vice President Zunis. <coughs> I'll read the roll. Commissioner Carter's absent. Commissioner Dickerson is absent. Commissioner Herbert is absent. Commissioner Huey. Uh, yes, I approve. Yes. Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. Yes. And Vice President Zunis. Yes. Motion passes. Congratulations. Great. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Okay, next item, please. <clears throat> item three, Board of Supervisors, file number 220340, Planning Code, uh, Neighborhood Commercial and Mixed-Use Zoning Districts. This is a discussion and action item. The commission will discuss and possibly take action on an ordinance amending the planning, commission, the planning code to update and reorganize neighborhood commercial and mixed-use zoning, zoning district controls including, among other things, to permit accessory arts activities and production, wholesaling and processing of goods and commodities to occupy more than one-third of total space in commercial, downtown residential, eastern neighborhoods, mixed-use, Mission Bay, and residential commercial districts. Today um, presenting, we have Aaron Starr, Principal Planner with um, the San Francisco Planning Department, and Madison Tam, Legislative Aide to Supervisor Dorsey. Great, so I'll uh, take it away. Uh, good afternoon or good evening, commissioners. Uh, my name is Madison Tim, uh, legislative aide for District 6 Supervisor Matt Dorsey. So I'm going to give a little overview of uh, the outreach we did and sort of how this uh, ordinance came to be. So when Supervisor Dorsey first took office, this ordinance crossed our desks and it had been a long time in the making and it was passed down from Supervisor Haney and his staff. This ordinance accomplishes two major things. First, it extends major components of Proposition H from 2020 to the Eastern Neighborhood Zoning Districts, and second, it reorganizes the Eastern Neighborhood's mixed-use districts tables and use definitions. As our office intends to do with each policy proposal, we began a thorough engagement process with community groups. Over the last six months, the District 6 office has met with stakeholders in the entertainment and business sector, including the Leather District, the Venue Coalition, the Golden Gate Restaurant Association, and many others. They all share the collective mission to allow nighttime entertainment in more places. This mission is more important than ever as we support our small businesses post-pandemic. And I want to thank staff at OEWD for taking the lead on this part of our outreach. We also had several meetings with Soma Filipinas, the Filipino Cultural District, and SOMCAN, the South of Market Community Action Network. While Soma is home to many bars and clubs, it's also home to many seniors and families. It is a diverse neighborhood with often competing uses. After many meetings and conversations together, all stakeholders uh, have agreed to allow nighttime uses in certain portions of SOMA, and this language has been incorporated into the ordinance and is also on file in a separate smaller ordinance. This will hopefully allow more flexibility for bars to go in in some parts of SOMA. I know many of them can really use that flexibility right now. Ultimately, there are bigger conversations that need to happen around the future of SOMA and downtown, and the supervisor's office looks forward to those discussions. We believe zoning reform is necessary to revive downtown and reshape what downtown will look like in our post-COVID city. Supporting small business outside of supporting zoning reform is a high priority for the supervisor's office, and we are excited for continuing community engagement around that as well. 
This ordinance was heard at the Planning Commission several weeks ago, weeks ago and received unanimous support. I'm on my second commission where I'm presenting this. Aaron's on his third, so I think by the time we're at land use, hopefully I can put my blindfold on and just explain all the pieces of this. Um, but that's a little overview of our outreach process, and now I'll pass it off to Aaron Starr. Thank you, Madison. Uh, thank you, Madison. So it's a very long ordinance, so I'm going to try to um, make it a little more, give you a little brief overview, and hopefully um, it won't be too much. Um, so the item before you is an ordinance that would amend the planning code um, to bring the Eastern Neighborhoods and Mixed-Use Districts in line with the code reorganization effort. Um, I know that uh, Katie Tang knows about that. I think she was on the Board of Supervisors when I started it. <laughs> um, and it would also make uh, several substantive amend uh, amendments to those districts. Uh, so the code reorganization started in 2014 with the intention of standardizing and consolidating all use definitions into one section of the code and standardizing zoning control tables. Articles 2, 7, and the Chinatown districts are complete, um, and this ordinance will bring the Eastern Neighborhoods mixed-use districts under the new format. And the final ordinance will amend the downtown residential districts. Um, and I say this only because the ordinance is about 275 pages, and the reason it is that long is because it is being the, those sections are being reorganized. Um, so beyond those uh, non-substantive changes, this ordinance also makes several substantive changes, and I'd like to provide a brief overview of those uh, by category. And the first one is accessory use. Um, uses. The ordinance proposes to amend the Article 8 and Article 2 accessory use controls to align with Article 7 accessory use controls to create consistency throughout the city. It does this by allowing accessory production, wholesaling, processing of goods to occupy more than one-third of the retail space. This would allow small manufacturers to have both a retail and manufacturing presence in one storefront. It amends the accessory use controls to allow limited live performance permits in the MUG, MUR, and REDMX districts, and it proposes to allow uh, restaurants to have an accessory catering use just like limited restaurants are allowed right now. Uh, for ground floor uses, um, in the Eastern Neighborhood Mixed Use Districts, projects that would be more than 10,000 square feet or uh, would have more than 10,000 square feet of ground floor commercial space would be required to provide commercial spaces in a range of sizes, including some spaces of 1,000 square feet or smaller. For the entertainment, arts, and recreation uses, it would allow arts entertainment in the SOMA NCT and Eastern Neighborhood Districts. It would remove the Planning Code's good neighbor policies for nighttime entertainment from the code and requ require compliance with the Entertainment Commissioner's good neighbor policies. It would remove the 200-foot buffer around the RED and RED-MX districts that restricts animal services and nighttime entertainment. And it would liberalize the nighttime and general entertainment controls for most districts in the eastern neighborhoods, downtown residential districts, RCD, Folsom Street NCD, and SOMA NCT. For eating and drinking uses, the ordinance would principally permit bar uses on the second floor in the Folsom Street NCT and regional commercial districts. Um, and for institutional uses, it would liberalize the controls for job training, uh, community facility, public facility, social service, and philanthropic facilities, and religious facilities in the Eastern Neighborhood Districts and the SOMA NCT District. It would allow arts activities, community facilities, private community facilities, public facilities, schools, social service or philanthropic facilities, and trade schools 
to be in to be principally permitted in historic districts in the RED and REDMX districts. That's significant because those districts are residential, so this would allow some non-residential uses as long as the building's historic. Um, and it would remove the hours of operation controls for MCDs in the Sally district. Most of those been, have been removed already. Um, for automotive uses, uh, it would require automobile sale and rental facilities to be enclosed buildings. It would prohibit public parking lots in the Western Mixed Use Office and Sally districts. It would prohibit public parking lots and garages and require conditional use authorization for private parking lots in the RED MX districts. Uh, for residential uses, it removes a provision that allows SRO buildings to have smaller rear yard requirements than other residential buildings. And it also does a lot to align with um, Proposition H, which was passed by voters, I believe, last year or two years ago. Um, so it removes 311 notification for principally permitted uses in the Eastern neighborhood districts. Um, it allows the same 30-day permit review timeline for eastern neighborhood districts as the NC districts, and it principally permits outdoor activity areas so long as they adhere to the restrictions adopted by Prop H. And then just some other uh, uncategorized, it allows large-scale urban ag uh, to be principally permitted in the eastern neighborhood districts. The FAR for uh, the South Park District, RED and RED-MX would be amount amended to allow FARs in other eastern neighborhood districts, uh, which is based on height. It, it allows the reactivation of LCUs um, to be approved by the zoning administrator, and so they don't need a CU to go to the planning commission. And the walk-up facility definition would be amended so that lighting requirements would be added. So as Madison mentioned, the supervisor plans to amend the ordinance so that nighttime entertainment is only permitted for properties fronting on Folsom Street between 7th and Division Street, and properties fronting on 11th Street between Howard Street and Division Street. Um, the department was fine with those proposed amendments. Um, and then on November 17th of this year, the Planning Commission voted to recommend the ordinance with the following modifications. Um, first is rather than amending the FAR ratios for the South Park, RED, and RED-MX districts, exempt um, uh, childcare facilities and residential care facilities from the FAR limits in those districts. Uh, remove the language referencing adequate lighting uh, and, and the planning department's lighting guidelines from the definition of walk-up facility. Uh, DBI is the agency that regulates lumens and lightings and you need an electrical permit anyway, so we're not quite the right agency to regulate that and remove the proposed changes that relax nighttime entertainment controls in various zoning districts and instead do the proposal on the map that I showed you. Um, and encourage the uh, Entertainment Commission to evaluate best how to mitigate the impacts in the RED and RED-MX districts from noise and other quality of life impacts related to nighttime entertainment that are located within 200 feet of those districts. Um, and that is it, but I'm happy to answer any questions. Great. Commissioners, any questions? Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. Thank you for that. Um, my just question was, what was the feedback like from some of Filipinas, and did did you receive any opposition at the first planning hearing? So the the um, I could probably let Madison talk about this, but they were very concerned about the nighttime entertainment changes uh, in the district, and they. Um, 
wanted, uh, but they negotiated with the leather community and some other community members, and so the map that I showed you was what they had come together and decided on as a together. Uh, Vice President Sazunas. Thank you. Thank you both for presenting today um, and for upgrading, you know, West Soma to the codes that are going to allow for a healthy ecosystem of business. So that's looking forward to that. Uh, just clarity because it West Soma is an industrial district, um, and I, I kind of want to understand the um, – we do have a big automotive presence there, businesses. Um, they're, I think, already, you know, in enclosed buildings. I just wanted to understand what exactly that term meant um, and if there's any existing uh, private or public lots or facilities, automotive facilities that don't already, that, that will be affected by this change. So anything existing, it doesn't uh -huh. impact at all. It's uh -huh. if they come in for a new uh, permit to open up a mm -hmm. automobile sale facility, mm -hmm. um, it has to be an enclosed building, and actually most of them already do that. Yeah. Um, and uh, same with parking lots and uh, surface parking lots. It's just from now on, um, they either wouldn't be permitted or um, they would need to be need a conditional use for the garage. So okay. existing businesses don't. So. So I just want, I wanted to follow up on that question, if, if I may. If, um, if there is, uh, you know, I know that, like, there's an enterprise down on uh, uh, Van Ness and uh, was it Mission, um, Mission, right? Mission. Right across the street from the planning department. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, if, <clears throat> if there was a change of control, uh, then presumably they would have to switch to a covered? No, so uh, the planning department regulates land use on the property, not the operator. So if it went from, is it Avis now, to budget, that wouldn't matter. It would just, as long as it stays uh, automobile rental place, it, the, the rules wouldn't change. Well, I guess what I'm saying is currently it's uncovered and would be grandfathered in, but if there was a, a change of ownership, then would they then have to cover it, or would the... No, the change of ownership doesn't impact the land use. Okay. So we don't regulate the operator, we regulate the land use. So the operators can change. It can go from budget to Avis to whomever, but we don't... It wouldn't have to come into compliance the, with the The use code. is grandfathered regardless yeah. of, of ownership. Okay, great, thank you. Commissioner Huey. Thank you very much for your presentation. Um, just a couple questions. What is um, large-scale urban ag? Um, I believe the definition over an acre. It's very unlikely to happen in the eastern neighborhoods districts. It was just not permitted, so it was something that was added to liberalize it. But um, it just allows for agricultural activity to be um, have some heavy machinery and to um, do sales on site of produce and things. So if someone wanted to, they could. Um, but land use prices and such, probably it's not going to happen. So it's not like uh, growing like cannabis or hydroponic? That would be industrial agriculture. We have 110 definitions in the code, but that's industrial okay. agriculture. <laughs> and that includes uh, growing everything industrially from tomatoes to cannabis, yeah. Oh, OK. OK. So Industrial agriculture versus large-scale urban agriculture. Yeah. Large-scale urban is more of like a community garden, but on a larger scale. Okay. 
Cool. And then, um, so with all these changes, do you have any, um, like, insight into, well, I'm, I'm wondering, I guess, what are your insights into how the neighborhood would change should all of this go through? Like, what do you see for the neighborhood in, like, you know, four years as things change? I'm not really in the business of predictions, but I don't think anything, especially since the communities come together um, around an agreement for the nighttime entertainment, which um, was a friction point because the leather community and the LGBT community were looking to open up more nightclubs and our entertainment commission was also looking for more places to open nightclubs, but they have to balance that with the residential uses nearby. So um, that will change, but I think w the agreement that they came on came upon is probably a really good one. They're the traditional areas where you normally see nighttime entertainment. Um, the other ones are more, it's just kind of, a lot of them is just good sort of governments and cleanup. There's no reason we should be pro prohibiting arts entertainment in any district in the city. It's just kind of a fluke that it wasn't allowed. So a lot of this is just sort of um, rationalizing the controls in the code. Okay. And then uh, I'm sure, I don't know, I'm sure it was mentioned, but how long did it take to do all the cleanup? <laughs> I started in 2014, and um, I've written every single one. <laughs> and uh, I know we're going to have a presentation in a little bit, but um, who does make predictions within planning? <laughs> uh, that is a good question. I don't know if we're in the prediction business so much, but um, we do try to uh, sort of think through the changes and understand how those might impact the community. Um, whether or not things work or not and end up how we had hoped, um, you know, only time will tell that. Um, but no one actually in the department is really in the prediction business, but we are in sort of looking for impacts that may occur and getting community feedback on the changes that we're proposing. Okay. I mean, I guess, you know, I'm just kind of wondering, like, it takes, so since 2014, um, we've been kind of cleaning up code towards a hope of an outcome that we don't quite know what it will look like. Makes me just kind of wonder, like, who is visualizing the landscape of the city? So there are two different efforts. One is these liberalizing uses in the Eastern Neighborhood Districts. Um, that's what I'm not predicting, because um, I don't know how the market will change, and I don't exactly know what businesses are going to open up or, you know, institutions are going to settle in the Eastern neighborhoods because of those changes. The code reorganization effort uh, has worked out really well so far from my understanding. It makes, um, we've consolidated all the use definitions into one section of the code. So a restaurant in a neighborhood commercial district means a restaurant downtown. Mm -hmm. Before we had 13 different use definitions in the code that dealt with eating and drinking uses, now we only have three. So we're going through this process of rationalizing definitions, um, making consistent formats. So once you learn how to read one zoning table, you can read a zoning table for every zoning district. It sounds 
basic, but there were four or five different formats in the planning code just because over the years we added some when you try new things. So the idea was to provide one set of use definitions and provide one format for zoning control tables to make it easier to implement and also to understand. Mm -hmm. um, and with that, because I am the one that came up with it, organized it, and has pushed it through for the last seven years, I think it's going great. <laughs> but, <laughs> I also agree that yeah. it sounds like it's um, But it has <laughs> been, in San Francisco, you know, we have to do community process, um, and we're very proud about that. Um, and people are very suspicious of the planning department when we propose a large ordinance like this. So it has taken a lot of effort to sit down with communities um, and uh, just explain to them what we're doing. And typically the code reorganization project um, doesn't have substantive changes. We try to maintain the controls as best we can. And when we can't, we highlight the difference in why we're making the policy call we are. But um, yeah. Well, I just want to thank you very much for all of your work on trying to consolidate all of this. So you're welcome. Thank you. Did you have any? Yeah, I just have one last question. Sure. Just so I make sure I'm covering my bases. Um, is the alcohol use the only regulatory licensed uh, use that's that's being amended here in terms of like uh, you outdoor activity area, it's kind of like extending an on-premise allowance? Um, so Prop H allowed uh, outdoor activity areas as of right, um, so long as they didn't serve alcohol in the outdoor activity area and they mm -hmm. closed by 10. Um, <clears throat> before, you just had to get a conditional use no matter what you were doing. So this liberalizes that and it sets some guardrails on it so that someone can't put a bar out in the outdoor activity area and then operate it until 2 a.m. If they wanted to do that, they could, but not, they, they have to get a conditional use authorization. Um, those parameters that were set by Prop H are just principally permitting it, so they don't need a conditional use authorization. Okay, and is this, the outdoor activity area, is it principally for the backyards or are we talking about potentially like uh, parklets? Um, parklets are run by the Department of Public Works, um, so it's a different program. Um, if you have an outdoor activity area in the front on the street, like you have a front setback and you put tables and chairs there, mm -hmm. that's already principally permitted. You don't need to um, get a conditional use authorization. It was just those outdoor activities in the rear yard that require mm -hmm. conditional use authorization, and Prop H liberalized that. So but only for the neighbor commercial districts. So this is doing the same thing Prop H did, but for the Eastern neighborhood districts. Okay, I'm just making sure there's no, um, like, as we're talking about on-premise alcohol, we didn't talk about off-premise Yeah, it doesn't change any, uh, any license requirements or what someone can have or anything like that. It just sort of allows more uses in more districts, mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't, say you can't have an off-premise with a restaurant license or something like that. Okay, so the, is is there other um, licenses that are, or like regulatory licenses like alcohol or tobacco mentioned in this, or is it just no, that? just that. Okay. Just the outdoor activity area. Okay, thank yeah. you. No problem. Great. Um, Aaron, so first of all, thank you for all your hard work. Uh, I was a very vigorous advocate for Prop H uh, and uh, very excited to uh, see that be expanded further. I think it's been very helpful overall to the small business community. Uh, 
Um, <clears throat> I've been on this commission, I'm now I think in my fourth year, and in all that time, I don't think I've ever seen a single line of regulation that actually affects my small business. <laughs> but, but this does? There's a first time for everything. Okay. Um, I run a van rental company. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, I, I guess I can, I can understand and, and even agree that the city wouldn't have an interest in open air lots. Uh, but maybe just because I'm so, and by the way, just full disclosure, I have no interest whatsoever in opening a location downtown or any conflict that I, I could imagine. But, um, but, but because of my proximity to uh, the industry and, and all the time I, I spend thinking about this and also all the customers I run into who run in with their vans into low-hanging overhangs and garages that are too small to park them. Um, I guess I have a question about uh, are we being judicious in lumping automobile sales together with rental, whereas automobile sales, maybe the city doesn't have as much of an interest in uh, accommodating, whereas there's an increasing uh, a, a need to increase the use of, of shared vehicles and particularly taller vehicles like vans uh, could, be, uh, could be challenging to find or operate or start a business that's competing with one of the big three if there's no, there's no actual place to do it. And in, in, in I think what's particularly uh, sharp about this is that it's in a place where people would be predisposed towards needing to rent a vehicle because they have no place to park it themselves. And something like a van's probably not going to fit in the garage in their uh, building, if, if their building even has one. Um, so it's one, they're in one use definition. They have been for as long as I can remember. Um, they are in most cities. There's yeah. nothing unusual about that. But I'm yeah. starting to wonder if like maybe we should start to split them apart because I think that there's, um, the, the cities probably rightfully have a separate policy interest uh, because they're, they're headed in two different ways. Yeah, um, I, I think that it's a really good question because there are instances where, you know, you do have big trucks and you have to, it's hard to find an interior building for that. Um, um, so it's certainly something that, you know, we can think about of whether or not they need to be uh, split up or not. Um, I am wary of adding yet another definition to the code just because there's a lot already. Um, but your point's well taken. It is um, a different, in some ways, a different beast. I think the definition was originally thought of, you know, for like downtown and neighbor commercial districts and not really um, in just thinking of it as an auto-oriented use because it is like a trucks coming and going or new car sales coming and going. You know, like it's a, um, it is an auto-intensive use. And I know you're not in the future prediction business, but... Uh, as a business owner, I kind of am. Yeah. Um, and a couple things I'm aware of. One, uh, California by 2035 is going all EV. Yeah. Um, so I think it's probably a safe bet to say that um, everything else being equal, uh, the acquisition cost of a car is likely to rise. Um, that there's going to be a lot of infrastructure requirements. And so I actually think uh, uh, the demand for 
being able to move groups of people um, in one fell swoop or being able to, you know, cargo. You know, I'm thinking about stuff like Zipcar and, and you know, sort of these ad hoc uh, uh, micro rental, uh, rent by the hour type businesses. Uh, there is a utility to having a place that's centralized that they can properly maintain the vehicles versus just peer-to-peer uh, -peer operators like get around and um, where it's just luck of the draw. Um, so uh, uh, planting that seed, um, I think that there is uh, an interest in, in increasing shared usage of, of vehicles, not just because it benefits my, actually we don't appeal to that use at all, but uh, but there are use cases where it's going to be tough to square that with uh, an enclosed garage unless you have very high roofs, and that's a whole other matter. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Uh, did you have? No. Okay. Um, is there any public comment? Uh, no public commenters appear to be in the room. None online. Uh, commissioners, so first of all, I, I want to thank the uh, supervisor and, and Madison for all the outreach. I think that was really uh, sharp and, and smart and building up that support and, and working out those negotiations beforehand uh, makes it a lot easier, I think, for everybody, um, including, most importantly, the community. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan uh, of this effort. Uh, and I'm inclined to support. Uh, is that the mood of the rest of you? All right. Um, I will make a motion to support the legislation. It's legislation, right? Planning amendment. <laughs> All second. Moved by President Laguana, seconded by Vice President Zizunas. I'll call the roll. Commissioner Carter is absent, Commissioner Dickerson is absent, Commissioner Her Herbert is absent, Commissioner Huey? Yes. President Laguana? Yes. Commissioner Ortiz-Cartagena? Yes. Vice President Cezunas? Yes. Motion to support passes. Great, thank, thank you so much. Thank you, Aaron. <clears throat> Next item, please. Item four, introduction to planning. This is a discussion item. The commission will receive an introduction to planning, reviewing current zoning rules, permitting procedures, among other things. Presenting today, we have Bridget Hicks, senior planner with the San Francisco Depart Planning Department. Welcome, Bridget. Take your time, no rush. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. It's not showing up. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm projecting the computer. So I'm like, they definitely didn't call that. So that's how we lost uh, City Hall. <laughs> 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 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love that, wow. Uh, well, thank you all for having me here today. Uh, my name is Bridget Hicks. I'm a senior planner with the planning department, and it sounds like Aaron gave a pretty good uh, starting point for a lot of the what we'll be talking about today, but I'm happy to answer any questions you have and dive deeper into any of these planning topics that are of concern. Um, so within the department, my work focuses on process improvements, and during COVID, I managed the Prop H implementation between all of the city departments, uh, which you've heard about just recently which was a uh, voter initiative to streamline small business permit approvals. And um, so yeah, I'm just here to give a brief overview of kind of what we, what we do at planning, especially in current planning, which is the permit review side, explain some lingo and kind of summarize what our recent small business efforts have been. So the guiding document for the planning department is the general plan. This document serves as kind of our uh, future guide of the long-term land use policies and decisions. I think this might be a bit more of the prediction side you're getting at of who's, who's kind of thinking of um, what, where the city will be in 10 or 15 years. Um, the general plan is required under the state law and it must be updated regularly. Um, consists of many of the elements, which you can see here, and one you may be familiar with is the housing element, which currently the city is updating right now um, and we have to submit to the state by the end of January. Bridget, um, yeah. would it be okay if I just encourage the commissioners to ask questions at the end of oh, each please. slide? Oh, please. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. Uh, so uh, I just had one question. I know the general plan is periodically updated, and I believe we're coming up for one? Yeah, so each element is on a different schedule. Okay. The housing element is like the major um, the topic that most people about. know about, and yeah. that's what we're on the schedule of right now. So it's been at the planning commission multiple times in the past few months. Um, the southern counties of the state have to do theirs. Theirs were do, was due last year, ours are all due this year. So all of the surrounding um, northern counties are also working on their housing element update. But um, yeah, other elements have been updated at uh, a regular cadence. I believe most of them are on a 10-year schedule of being updated, but um, yeah. And which of these elements would you say has the most nexus with small business? Would that be commerce and industry? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, you know, I, I mean, you could argue that like arts and community safety and transportation, like you could argue they all connect, right? right. They're all intertwined. They yeah. But anytime we make um, a decision with the planning commission or internally at the department, uh, we're basing it on findings that align with the general plan. And, um, and when is the commerce one? When does that come up? Do you I have don't know. I can find okay. out that okay. for you. And it's but, it's yeah. not just if you knew. I'm yeah, yeah. Uh, and by the way, commissioners, I think for this part, if you just want to jump in, just go ahead and jump in. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering for, um, for any of these pieces, how much, um, I guess, conversation or input do you give or get, like for regional? actually like like talking to other Bay Area uh, municipalities about like say for housing like I would assume that 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 we don't live in a silo in yeah terms of housing supply yeah um, a lot of it is interconnected I think you know especially with transportation we've got um, a, you know the associated governments of the Bay Area region who all work together because all of our mismatched uh, transportation uh, organizations do connect um, with housing 
it is a, the state has a regional housing needs assessment, so they do take into account the needs of the area, right? Because a lot of people who live in San Francisco work in Silicon Valley. So there, there's a, a bit of a mix there. Um, but yeah, based on uh, the state's review, they do a, a, a needs assessment of how much housing we need, and they they break it down by county. So I believe we're, I believe we're looped in with one of the Marin and maybe a northern county, but I don't want to speak too much for the, the team that works really hard on that and knows all the answers, but you know, some uh, other counties are combined together, so it's like you know, Contra Costa and Alameda might have to do theirs to get, like, have a goal together to reach in terms of the amount of housing. But yeah, all, all of it is um, definitely regionally connected. We don't do, all, pretty much nothing happens in a vacuum of just the city, yeah. Okay, cool, thank you. So within the planning department, we have a few different divisions. Um, there's over 200 of us that work there. Um, current planning is the one that's probably the most tangible to members of the public and um, to you all, because that is where the, the permits are acquired and processed um, to see what is permitted and what is not. Citywide planning is the group that does that long range look, so they're the ones who are focused on the housing element. Um, we are also the body that does the environmental review under the California Environmental Quality Act for the city for most projects. Um, so we have a large environmental planning division. We also have a community equity division um, and then administration and our own commission affairs. I see environmental planning is the one handling Teletubbies. I think that's a I think that's a Cal Academy roof. Oh, okay. I'm not positive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it did look very much like yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so the planning code is really our our most specific document. This um, the ideas of the general plan get put into specific um, objectives and criteria and regulations in the planning code. Um, it's over 2,000 pages long, and as Aaron said, you know, it's been organized pretty differently and been grouped together differently depending on when certain areas were, became more, you know, had more interest. And so then, you know, when SOMA got redeveloped, it was like a lot of, uh, I, there were a lot of new code sections created for that in response to that. And then as new uses come around, um, we add new things. So the planning code is always changing, um, but this is what we look to as kind of the yes, no, is it allowed, is it not, document. Um, and then we've got a bunch of different maps within there um, because we're all uh, really into land use, but also it helps to kind of uh, understand where we are. So the biggest way to know um, what regulates a, a particular parcel is its zoning district. That's kind of the underlying, but then there's other layers such as height districts. Um, we have special use districts and you know, preservation districts, coastal zones, things like that in response to whatever's happened. Um, so this is the overarching, oh sorry. I, I just, curiosity always, the coastal zone, how, how in, does it apply to the bay too and how deep does it go? Yeah, the coastal zone is, is quite narrow. So it's actually just probably one street or two in from the great highway really small and um, the idea it does not apply to the inland bay area it's just onto the coast so that's a there's a state california coastal commission um, so anything that's being built like right on the ocean to is going to have to get an approval from the coastal commission okay. also there are some things that are exempt like if you've got a single family home and you're in that zone you there's there might be an exemption that the california coastal commission says okay you can handle that locally it's a 
you know, fixing a window on a house, it's kind of a minor scope. But if you're building a huge new structure or the wastewater treatment plant update, you would need to talk to the California Coastal Commission and get their approval. Um, but yeah, so this is a pretty crazy looking map, but this is the overall zoning map of where all the different districts are. Um, you know, as you can see, the majority of it is yellow. Yellow is the residential zoning districts. Um, and you could kind of tell, it lines up with most of our uh, awareness of the city of, okay, you know, Sunset and Richmond is all where the residences are. There's some streets that have businesses on them, and those are the this, um, strips of purple that would be like Taraval Street and things like that. And then, you know, red is our downtown, blue is our industrial zoning. Um, yeah, the legend is really huge because there's a lot of different zoning districts. So I won't go into all uh, the specifics of every single one, but um, the most relevant, um, I think, for small business owners are usually the neighborhood commercial districts. We have a few set ones of just generic, um, like an NC one, but then we also have specific ones like um, the Lower Haight neighborhood commercial district and uh, things like that. Um, in those districts, we, as you can kind of imagine, thinking of like Tower of Wall Street, you've got small businesses on the ground floor and residential buildings above, and uh, residential units above, and they're usually two to three stories. Um, then the commercial districts are our downtown areas. Um, currently, we're looking, the city is looking at ways to redecide what we're doing with the zoning in those areas, but historically, it's just been commercial office, um, ground floor retail, that kind of thing. But um, yeah, and then our residential ones, really, it should only be um, residential uses in there. There shouldn't be um, other commercial or industrial uses there. What you do often see are these um, corner grocery stores or markets or other things that have existed before we created these rules of an overlay. Those we call an LCU, which is an limited commercial use. So some small business owners have that business and it maybe bought it from someone else and it's been there forever. So even though they're technically in a residential zone, they're allowed to continue to operate because they've been, so to say, grandfathered in. Can I ask you about that for just a second? Yeah. So <clears throat> I don't know when the, the, the commerce section was last updated, but I feel like it's been a general philosophy of the planning department to seek the 10-minute city or 15-minute city, this idea that, you know, your, your necessary services like grocery, laundry, uh, dentist uh, would all be within a 10 to 15-minute walk. Um, when I hear you talk about the LCUs and that we've, uh, you know, at some point at a later date designated the entire area residential is, is are you aware of like a thought in like, I'm, so first of all, I, I imagine that like changing the zoning would require an ordinance or legislation, uh, but um, I know that the staff often makes recommendations to policymakers, and there's you know some conversation that goes back and forth. So I, I guess the question that I'm asking is, um, do you think we're getting the mix on small business right in residential, or do, is there room to grow? Like I'm thinking about people that start little businesses and garages. Like why can't we have a a, a little coffee store uh, or coffee shop in a in somebody's yeah. garage that's open you know on Saturday and Sunday? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So there, there are a few instances within the, I guess what I'm saying, when I say these are residential districts, they're not 
like only residential. There are opportunities to do other things. They're just mostly residential. Oftentimes you just need extra special approval from the planning commission in order to do something else. Um, some things we allow are like at home businesses, which we kind of group under a cottage food operation. So, you know, people can register their business to their home. They can make jams at their home in their kitchen, be registered at their a residence. Um, they're not allowed to put like a huge amount of signage and make it kind of scream like a business, but they can do a lot of the things. And I believe they can employ at least one other person who comes in to work there. So mm. there are some options. Um, okay. With LCU, some things we've changed, especially under Prop H, was that made it a lot easier to switch the use in that LCU. It used to be, okay, this was a market. It can only ever be a market unless you get go through a long process. But now we've made it so you can switch to any other use in that baseline NC1 zoning district. So you could switch to maybe a real estate office or whatever fits the neighborhood there. So right. um, yeah, so there's definitely ways around the, the residential zoning. It's not like hardcore, no option, but um, yeah, that's kind of where we're at with those. Okay, that, that's helpful, thank you. Yeah. Um, so on top of those baseline zoning districts, so being a neighborhood commercial or residential use, then we've got special use districts. These are usually in response to neighborhood desires or concerns. So, um, you know, these are, Things like on Taraval Street, we limit the amount of restaurants. There's a cap. Um, at, and the mission, there's a, a limit on the amount of alcohol-related uh, businesses because the mission felt like there was an over-concentration of those uses. So now to open a new business that you want to um, sell or uh, on-sell or off-sell alcohol, you have to acquire it from someone else within the mission special use districts so that that amount of liquor licenses remains the same within those businesses. Um, you know, in Hayes Valley, we uh, do not allow formula retail. So that's where a lot of these like new storefronts will open their first location. And in North Beach, they'd like to maintain this fine grain neighborhood um, storefronts. So they keep those small and combining storefronts requires extra approval. So those are some of the um, additional layers we have. <coughs> Um, but within planning, we're mostly focused on, in, re in relation to a small business, we're focused on the size of the business. There's often a cap of somewhere around 2,500 square feet for these businesses. The idea is they don't want, instead of having that nice fine grain neighborhood, to then become just one store taking over the entire block to allow multiple. So dependent on the location, there's a limit on the size. So, you know, in in the mall in Stonestown or downtown, there's not the same limit on the size as there is in Hayes Valley. Um, we also regulate things like formula retail, the hours of operation for a business, um, the use type, liquor licenses, the location <coughs> that they're located on, like which story of the building. We require some storefront transparency because we don't want the storefronts to be kind of blocked off to the pedestrian. We want it to be an engaging experience. And then um, street signage, which often comes up. And I, um, I oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I, I think formula retail is something that comes up a lot. It is kind of confusing if you've never heard of it in this way that we define it at planning. But this is essentially your chain stores. We define it as having 11 or more locations worldwide. So even if this is your first US location, we would consider you to be formula retail. A good majority of small business uses um, are regulated by formula retail. There are some that are not, um, but it's kind of you know 
these are businesses that have standardized features um, throughout. So yeah, many locations limit formula retail, but Union Square does not. So you'll see a lot of chain stores in Union Square, but you won't see those same chain stores, you know, on the on Hate Street, things like that. I have I have a question about this one. So your little picture here is actually really cute. Um, yeah, it's it's not mine. It's from a, some document we have from a while ago. But yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> And it makes me wonder, uh, so I, w we've heard about some interesting, uh, it's hard to say whether they're outlier cases or not, but um, there are local, say, small businesses with a regional presence who run afoul of this um, 11 or more locations rule. Uh, Meanwhile, at the same time, and this is something I've heard about often from Hayes Valley, and I'm sure you have too, we have these large businesses that have in excess of a billion dollars in annual revenue who, because they only have two stores, uh, it's not a problem for them to move in. So it's a little frustrating when you have a small local business that, that uh, came up locally and is just trying to expand, you know, like maybe Ike's. Uh, subs, that was like a, a pretty classic one. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Alfaralito. Um, you said it, not me. But uh, the, um, uh, it's a bit frustrating uh, that local homegrown businesses seem to uh, have a, a higher threshold to cross than some of these, you know, massive online businesses. Um, something that businesses often say to me when they're talking about this was, well, can't we just make it so that local businesses aren't uh, uh, legislated by the formula retail rule and it only applies to businesses from out of town? Um, I know you're not the city attorney. I'm not going to put you in the question of, of answering that, but what has been told back to me and what I understand is, is we have the, uh, the Fifth Amendment that uh, basically, you, you can't set up tariffs in cities and say, well, because you're from out of town, it, it's going to cost you more. Um, but I, where I'm going with this is, um, you know, in my interactions with this legislation, trying to find some way to make it more accommodating for local small businesses while maybe less accommodating for these huge, you know, truly global businesses with, with massive amounts of revenue. Uh, you know, I also said, well, what about employees? Um, can we can we legislate based on the number of employees? Like, so if you have more than 100 employees, then formula retail kicks in. If you have less than 100 employees, then it doesn't. So the answer that came back to me is no, because planning has to be visual. Like, plan planning is ultimately about visual the visual aspects of the business and not about, like, it can't look at how many employees work in a business. So one is I wanted to, like, because I see you um, looking at me kind of questioningly, have, have you heard or seen otherwise in the planning code that it can examine things that are, like, non-visual aspects of a business? I think I, I'm just having this thought of uh, I, I, the department does not have a position on this, and so I'm not here conveying any yeah. specific position. Sure. I don't want to say anything like that. But um, I think maybe the visual explanation was more about regulating the land use, as like Aaron was saying earlier, we're talking about the, the use, not the operator. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it's a bit tricky for there. Um, you know, other programs have used the amount of sales and gross receipts for things as a way to determine stuff. Right. Um, I think there's definitely, there could be an opportunity to make a change to this. I'm not sure of what would fit the, uh, the, the right legal way to, to make that work. But yeah, we do see this happen and we do get questions about that because ours is 11 or more and then standardized features. So yes, you could be a really 12 person, 12 location business. That's so yeah, I guess we're, I, I think where I was going with this is I, I never even thought about this till I saw the picture uh, that's in, in your slide. But could you say if the square footage of the store is, say, a thousand feet or less, you can have up to a hundred locations worldwide. So you could have like these little micro H&Ms or, um, you know, gaps or what have you and start to fill up some of these vacant. Walgreens what? Target and Walgreens already have circumvented our formula. We tell policy by doing that. Uh, well, right, but that's, they're doing it in a way that's sort of, um, um, you know, like the a Athleta was kind of how, like it was owned by the Gap, but because it had a different name and a different look, then it, you know, it didn't matter. Um, so, yeah, but like, I mean, I don't, I don't know where I'm, I'm like, just, this is something that I've been thinking about for a long time. So like, I, I just had to think out loud. Yeah. I mean, I currently we don't use use size. So yeah, that is definitely something that, that, that is not a factor in, in the determination of formula retail or not. So yeah, but we do use use size and other land use regulations. Hmm. I mean, this is a conversation that I think many people in many neighborhoods have, right. In terms of formula retail, I know, um, for, for me, like in my experience in working with merchants associations and neighborhood groups and things, it's like, you know, this really is a larger question in terms of like, what do we want to see in our neighborhoods? What do we want to see in our corridors? And I think, um, and I think the answers kind of vary. The answers, like some residents don't mind formula retail, right? They mm -hmm. want to see their okay. favorite shop down the street from them. Then you have like the small business community that's generally not happy with that situation because our rents go up, you know, situations where we're really kind of boxed out of being able to function as small businesses because of the scale of investment in these larger businesses that kind of play, play small. So, you know, I think this is really a question, like a, a bigger question in terms of what does San Francisco want to be and what types of businesses do we want to support to grow here. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think just the place I'm coming from is I want local homegrown businesses that are, you know, mm -hmm. able to find purchase and 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 grow. Like that, there's there's a way for them to do so without having to leave town. The yeah. way that Ike, Ike Subs did, which is I think like frustrating. Like mm -hmm. you go to Seattle, they didn't say Starbucks get out. They, you know, they were uh, accommodating and like you can. There's Starbucks everywhere in Seattle, and and these. The other part of it, too, is, as uh, uh, Vice President Sazunas correctly pointed out, these larger companies, it, it just seems like they find a way to get around it anyways. So, Yeah, like Hayes um, Valley. Like Hayes Valley. <laughs> so um, I, just, I, I, I find the picture incredibly charming. It reminds me of like uh, New York uh, where you know, there'll be like two or three layers of, of retail shops and, and you know, there might be like a little tiny... Uh, 
you know, shawarma place in, in the basement and, and uh, you know, pizza on the second floor and hair salon on the third and, and just uh, I'm, I'm struck by this and I'm also struck by the fact that we have such a high vacancy rate right now mm -hmm. and is there a way to keep the intent uh, while uh, loosening things up in a way that, that makes it a little more viable for the El Ferralitos or the San Francisco Soup Company or the Ike subs of, of the world. Um, so anyways, I apologize for taking us on the side quest. No, I mean, I think that is something that for, you know, us as a commission is something good for us to ruminate and think about, right? Because it's like, that's, I think that's really key to why many of us are probably seated here is like, how do we help businesses, you know, that want to grow in San Francisco grow? And how do we get them to be visible parts of our neighborhoods? How do we get them to, you know, the next step? So, I mean, I think that's a really important question and, and for us to kind of learn more about possibilities, I think. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, the, also the, the thing about formula retail that I've noticed over the years from owning a retail uh, business is really that you know, scale is just defined so differently, right? Like that's what we're talking about in terms of like um, businesses having large investments where maybe it's like their very first store on the ground, but they own much of the market share. So, I mean, I, th I feel like we should evolve the conversation at some point and, and talk about formula retail. I think so. like a lot of people generally are more willing <clears throat> to accumulate accommodate even like a larger formula retail place that comes to the neighborhood if it's a small footprint um, the it's I, I think like I think they are but I don't know if I don't know if everybody would be in agreement with that well when is <laughs> everybody in agreement <laughs> it's planning nobody's ever like <laughs> totally in agreement but yes uh, I, I, I take your point Bridget I'm so sorry to no, take please. us on a detour that's why I'm here I'm glad yeah. to yeah Get us it's okay. You out. said the F word, so we had to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> had a moment of shock there. <laughs> um, I was like, did I? I was like, oh, I totally could have. <laughs> so um, we have this excellent tool, and I, I'm sure may, uh, many of you have seen this before, but this is our property information map. It was made by someone in-house, which is really great. And this is a web tool that kind of makes visible the most prevalent or desired parts of the planning code. So um, you could type in your address, you could type in a block lot, whatever you need, and then you can find out all the information about that address. You can find out the building permits that happened back until I think like usually the mid 80s is where you, we get the records. You find out all those layers of zoning districts. Um, you can find out what the um, like last legal use has been, if there's been any referrals between the planning department and other agencies like health or entertainment, um, if there's been any appeals, if there's any complaints or enforcement cases. Um, so this is a really great resource. Um, when you use this website, anything in orange is hyperlinked and will bring you right to the planning code. Um, you can also, it's a little tricky to figure, and I definitely can't show on the slide, but you kind of, uh, click related documents and then you would get a list of all of the documents that are uploaded um, and public records. So um, yeah, this is um, you know, on the far right 
side, um, you can toggle on those map layers and you can make the map larger and, and play around with, with those different zo um, zoning districts in a visual way if you need, so. Can, I, can, can, go ahead. Yeah. No, you go can, ahead. Can, can you give a shout out to whoever made this? Like at, at Gletcha and the city, we use this PIM, we live and die by PIM. Yeah. And it's one of the few things that actually works, works intuitively. Thank you, thank yeah. you, thank yeah. you. So whoever. That's Mike Wynn, yeah, he's great. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, we love you. Can we, um, can we make a feature request? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we definitely make changes to it all the time, so. Yeah, um, so, the, and it may already do this and I just haven't played with it in a while. Um, so apologies yeah. uh, if it does. Uh, the two feature requests I would like, one is if you click on a property, that's somewhere there's a way to like click on something and it shows you all of the allowed uses. Um, you know, just listing all the different businesses that are allowed to use there as defined by planning code. Doesn't have to go into details, just like all the allowed uses. And the corollary, um, there should be a way to drop down an allowed use and it might have to be like a different instance or something. So it's, I understand real estate for software is it's like real estate for uh, uh, real life, right? Like there's only so many things you can fit on a screen, so you might have to spit it out as a different thing. But it'd be really great if like, you know, I really want to open a barbershop. Where can I open a barbershop? Uh, and it could just light, light it up like a map. And even better, more amazing would be if there are an API that came out of that, um, that folks like LoopNet, um, and uh, what's the other one, CoStar uh, could use, so that I want to open a barbershop, you go on one of these websites, show me all the available properties that are zoned for a barbershop. And you know, then I can go to town and, and make bids on them. I'm in a weird industry, and when I, we have locations in different cities, um, and uh, trying to figure out what's available what's zoned, what's available and zoned is always just, uh, seems like it's more work than it should be. So the, the, the easy one would be just show us all the allowed uses. The, the next one would be show us all the properties that this particular use is okay in. And then the, the stretch goal would be some sort of API that third party services could plug into to, to show you everything that's available. Yes, yeah, so um, PIM does not have that feature as, you know, as I think Aaron's alluded to, each zoning district is incredibly complex and it's, it's not just are you a hair salon, it's are you a hair salon and you're in Hayes Valley where formula retail is not allowed but you're in Union Square and formula retail is and what floor you're located on and what right. size, so there's a bunch of layers but we did have a tool developed by a company called Symbium, and that does do what you're talking about, where you can type in hair salon, and it will give you a map and show you everything green on the map that is allowed. Um, I don't know. There are some nuances to that tool, like some, some uses are allowed in landmark buildings, and th some things are nuanced, yeah. so it's never right. perfect, but that's one source. Um, and is that on? Um, it does link on the website, and I doesn't show on this screenshot, but I somewhere on PIM it is a link. I can okay. show you that. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so that that's one tool. Um, the available use spaces is another layer that's a little tricky. Um, 
I mean, as you know, there are some new, there's some new regulations around vacant storefronts. So uh -huh. potentially we have some opportunities to map those out. But um, currently we don't really have a good inventory of which retail locations are, are open. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so um, do you want, want so we're, we're wondering if we have quorum uh, because they're supposed to be. Oh, sure. Sorry. Yeah, it's supposed to be. No, no, no. It's fine. Um, I think we're okay because it's a discussion item. I think so too, as long as you're not actively voting on. Something. Yeah, this is just education and information, so I think. Mm hmm. Just. Can, I think you can still meet. You're making me doubt myself because yeah, you're I feel making like me you doubt would myself know this, too. But I was, I, I'm, pr I thought it was only for like action. I would say keep going, and I will Google it. I mean, the board is almost <clears throat> always legislative, though, right? Like you're always no. And do they stop for? Oh, that's interesting. I'm also happy to pause if you want to take a five, ten minutes and then go back. I mean, into we'll it. call the city attorney immediately, <laughs> wherever he may be or Hit she. Hit the red button. Like alarm goes off. <laughs> Legal question. <laughs> I think I think we should keep going until we learn otherwise. Yeah, somebody will spank us if we got it wrong. Yeah. Please okay. proceed. Sounds good. With the informational presentation. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so as Aaron kind of alluded to a little bit, there are a lot of definitions in the planning code. Um, sometimes it can be as fine-grained as, well, it used to be catboarding, had its own specific use. He said there used to be many different types of restaurants. We're trying to consolidate that a bit to make it a little easier, but it's definitely a confusing thing for small business owners to figure out what use they fit under. Mm -hmm. um, like personal service use is pretty encompassing. Of a nail salon, you could do microblading, you could do a bunch of different things and all be under that personal service use. So um, when people are confused about what they fit under to then decide where they can be located, uh, we suggest they reach out to the planning department, office of small business, you know, we're all available to, to answer those questions and help classify. Some are really some new uses that we've never seen before, we then have to have the zoning administrator make a determination of what it best falls under, if it's a bit confusing. But uh, yeah, in general, everything should be called out in section 102. So an applicant could go in there and find what, what, business, um, what use they fit under. Uh, then once you, you have your use, you have, there's three options. You're either the use is not permitted, so that's like, you wouldn't be able to do, um, you know, like a crazy uh, industrial facility right next to like some residential homes. We try and zone away from that. Um, then there are things that are principally permitted. So like in Stonestown, you can open up any clothing store, like no problem, no, no questions asked. And then there are things that are conditionally permitted. So it needs a conditional use authorization. That is a approval from the planning commission so you do have to go to a public hearing to get that approval. Um, it's often in cases where a neighborhood is trying to put a limit 
on the amount of those businesses or the concentration of them, but doesn't want to outright ban them. They just want to make sure that it's something that the neighborhood supports. So a new applicant would have to, uh, you know, get out, do outreach with the neighborhood, make sure that um, they were in support of the project, and then come forward to the planning commission, ask for approval. The planning commission is a subjective body, so there's no guarantee on approval on those. Um, but yeah, that's the, those are the three kind of buckets you would fall into as a, as a use. Um, then once you know what your use is, um, you go to PIM or and you find out which zoning district you fit under. Then you come to the zoning tables. These are uh, scrolling tables and I have not figured out a way to get it all on one page. I know that's always a question people ask, but, um, you see, so if you wanted to open a bar in this district, you could open a bar on that first, on the first floor. That's that first column. Then it's the second floor, and then it's the third floor and above. Um, if it's got um, a number in parentheses, that means there's a footnote, and there might be, okay, a specific type of bars with a specific type of alcohol license is not allowed in this area, but some are. So again, here's where your P is principally permitted. NP is not permitted, and C is a conditional use. Um, if your business is not listed as one of these uses, but you know what your use is, you assume the, the use of the top. You roll up into that category of general retail sales and service. So say, for instance, this is not the full shop, but if personal service didn't show up here, we would group personal service under that first category of retail sales and service. What, um, going back to that for a second, I, I, I've always been, this actually loops into the er earlier conversation about how like other cities like New York tend to stack um, business uses a bit more than we do. Why is so much of the code not permitted above ground floor? What, what was the rationale or the thinking? I'm, I'm not asking you to speak on behalf of the department. Like what? I gonna, yeah, I just, I truly don't know that, that answer. I think the the idea historically is that like, you know, we're, we're not one of those cities like Minneapolis where it was like all in malls or at like upper floors. It's like people are, are most of the active frontage is at the street level. So that's where the, the main um, focus is on the regulations. But yeah, I think that's why um, the new legislation is considering opening up more uses on upper floors in Union Square and downtown districts because historically, um, it's been like restaurants are fine on the ground floor, but not on the second or other things like that. So no, I don't have a good answer. I can try and find that out for you and get back later. Well, but. I, I mean, even just thinking about something like a gym, you see how much, you know, gyms are competing for other uh, uses. Uh, and it seems like we have a lot of gyms, um, but maybe not as many. Uh, I don't know. Help me. Uh, something. Um, <laughs> I, it, it just, you, you have more businesses competing for less space, so it has the yeah. perhaps unintentional effect of raising uh, the cost for everybody. Um, and so yeah, and I think when, when a lot of, when there are legislative updates, they usually take an example of this table and truly cross it out and write the new one. So there have been a lot of instances where it's like, okay, we now want to allow gyms on the second floor in more places because, you know, you can make the argument that that is not as active of a frontage, people aren't, people are going in and out, but it's not like a, I don't know, not the same way that a clothing store is like that active um, kind of storefront or something selling baked goods and that real high turnover. So yeah, there's definitely opportunities to make changes and, and 
you know, as Aaron showed by being here today, we're always coming to you with new changes to the code and coming from you or whoever, so, yeah. Um, um, oh, can I ask about um, neighborhood kind of, um, what is that, like when you, when you have a conditional use permit or, or a conditional use application and then you have to do all the neighborhood alerting and everything, yeah. I mean, I think San Francisco has a reputation for being a place where, you know, one person can stall a situation for years. Um, is that something that in planning can be addressed? Yeah, definitely. So um, that's right. Most, most actions in San Francisco that we take as a planning department are discretionary and they can be appealed by whomever. Um, and it can be just one person. It doesn't have to be a certain level of signatories. Um, we have historically, you know, anytime we do a public hearing, we definitely do the neighborhood notice. So we do a 20-day um, mailer. There's a poster up on the site. It's in the newspaper to say that there will be a public hearing. Um, the other instances where we do notice is under our planning code section 311, and that's when Sometimes just the change of use requires that 311 notice, even if the use is principally permitted. Um, but other times, if you're, say, demolishing a home and building a two-story home, you would also have to do that 311 notice. So it's pretty varied in what it, uh, when it is required. But what I'll say is that pre-PREP H and the Small Business Recovery Act, 311 was required in most cases for a change of use to a principally permitted use. So even if you were going from a gym that's allowed to a clothing store that's allowed, you'd have to do 311 notice. Prop H got rid of that notice for a lot of those businesses. So we've seen a, a huge decrease in the amount of businesses we're process we're doing that notice for. Now it's more that those businesses can come get approval over the counter from us with a building permit and not have to notify the neighbors. There still is the opportunity to appeal the building permit but it's not that same 30-day notice and the filing of the discretionary review, which brings them here, as we've seen in a few instances with falafel and ice cream in the past and you know things that have, it's just been the notice for the change of use, which has prompted that. So in some districts, it's gone away, and I'll, I've got a slide later that shows where that's um, no longer required. Um, in a lot of the areas around SOMA, it is still required to get that notice um, to change the use to something principally permitted, but... So is it up to the discretion of the planning commit, like planning, I don't know, department to to kind of hear the the person who's like, say there's like one disgruntled neighbor or whatever. Like, I mean, at what point does this like does a decision just have to be made? Like, how how long does the process? Because it sounds like the process just keeps going and going, but I, I mean. So once the department is in support of a project, meaning that it's code compliant, we will take our action to approve or whatever, um, or require the hearing or whatever it is. So with a change of use from a gym to a clothing store, we would take our action and sign off on the building permit. If some, if that required this notice, and some neighbor or resident, whomever group decided they wanted, they didn't want that to happen or they want, had wanted some changes made, they could file the discretionary review and bring it to the planning commission. Um, we usually have at least two items under the discretionary review calendar every single week. So it is quite frequent and often it is just one party 
that is filing that appeal and it's not a group. They can they do do it jointly sometimes or they'll get a whole bunch of signatories from the neighborhood or some groups that are really in opposition to it, but it is often just one. I think when we start to see patterns, our supervisors notice that and then um, members of the Board of Supervisors propose legislation to change some things. But yeah, there's definitely, there are options to make those changes. It's So it's in our code of what requires this neighborhood notification. Um, so we can make changes to that, but it would have to be a legislative change to make an amendment to that. Yeah. Could, could the board, this is a hypothetical, maybe you can't answer it, but um, could the board say, uh, if permitted, if approved by staff, uh, there can be no discretionary review? Yeah, so that's what we got rid of with Prop H. It got rid of that neighborhood notice. So now instead of doing it as an intake permit and bringing it upstairs and creating one of these notices, we just sign off that day and we route it on to the next apartment and then it gets approved. Oh, I so, thought it was just getting rid of the notice, but somebody could still file a discretionary review if they wanted to, if they got wind of it somehow. Um, I don't want to speak to, yeah, yeah <laughs> need a city attorney here, but yeah. I believe technically someone could file a discretionary review during that, in that day, fraction of in a that second. like yeah. period of okay. time, the person yeah. is going between the stations. Yeah. I think a more typical response would be to appeal the building permit because that once appealed is, it, um, it has like a, a pretty standard way to file that process. But the discretionary review, usually the neighborhood doesn't know about it unless we do our neighborhood notice. Put a kick there, me sign on the back of the, the, the business's pants. Yeah. That's how I look at it. <laughs> yeah, we do have this other um, notification tool called a block book notice, which some neighborhood groups or individuals mm -hmm. can have. And that means even if we could sign off on it that day at the counter, we have to consult that person that filed that notice. So there are some groups that file those. And then, you know, if we've got a letter from them saying, yep, I'm okay with it, or, you know, they've gotten pre-clearance from that person and they say it's okay, then we can approve that day. But otherwise, we have to kind of hold it for 10 days to give that uh, person who has the BBN the opportunity to uh, voice our concerns. So, I understand that and the reason for that. But um, those are uh, exceptions to rules that are, it's not as necessary broadly citywide. Yeah, that's correct. So that's yeah. why we've, yeah, 311 is kind of the citywide governance of it and um, determined by neighborhood. And during COVID, we decided sure. that was too much, so we'll pull mm -hmm. it back. Um, but yeah, those ones are just uh, individuals can take those actions. Great. Um, so then we just, I know this is a tool I often forget about is that we have a, a search feature on our website for just permits in my neighborhood. You just type in your address and see on a map where everything is what's changing, who's going in for what, um, because most of our notices, um, you won't receive them in the mail unless you're within 300 feet of a radius. You would see it on the site when you walked by or um, on our website, but um, you could do this as if you wanted to proactively find out um, other uh, things that are happening. Um, so with that conditional use authorization, there is um, a program that benefits small business owners to help speed up the process of getting that conditional use authorization. Um, the CU takes, the CU is the conditional use, sorry if I hadn't made that clear, um, 
it often takes, we say, six to nine months to get through that process. Um, and uh, you know, if you come in with a totally otherwise code compliant project, it's pretty easy for us to conduct our review and say, okay, great, we're ready to bring you to a hearing. But um, if not, you know, there might be some back and forth. The CB3P program is a way to speed up this conditional use just for small business owners, so you're guaranteed to go to a hearing within 90 days of filing your application. Um, so that's had some great success. There are some criteria, like you can't do some things like a bar can't benefit from this program because we find that you know, some uses like a bar have a lot more, there's more neighborhood input usually than a clothing store has um, on that opening. So there's some things like that, but yeah, as you'll see, formula retail's not there. If you want to go, if the, the zoning district says you can only go till 11 p.m. and you want to operate till 4 a.m., you won't be able to use this program for that. But if you meet the basic criteria, um, you can use this program. So this has been a, a great resource, yeah. Thanks. I just had a question about, about the CB3P. Since we, as a commission, have made recommendations before to include small business uses that aren't included in this, um, one in particular, corner stores, because of the regulatory licenses they hold. Um, I think that's been the, the barrier to, to have expedited processing, but is there, um, I mean, we had economic mitigation recommendations that were sent to the department a few years back that, that mentioned that as a recommendation. So I'm just curious if there's been um, any uh, conversation to bolster this program with more uses. Yeah, it, w it was amended um, with Prop H and the Small Business Recovery Act, so it was expanded a bit. Some types of massage uses were excluded and now are in included. Um, so yeah, there are periodic changes. Again, this is another thing that we can, this is a little bit different. This is um, more of a policy document as opposed to actual piece of our planning code. Um, because the underlying requirement of the conditional use remains the same. That's what's in the planning code. But this kind of policy um, is something that, yeah, we do change from time to time and have, so. Would it, would it be something that would have to come from outside of the department to, like, since it's a policy change? I don't believe so. I think it could be internally, but I think usually, um, like a change to something like this would be in consultation with you all and other departments to see what is, you know, and mm -hmm. um, the elected officials to see kind of what is the right, what is actually the overall desire mm -hmm. of, of something that's changed and have we proven that it is something that, you know, we've seen time and time again and it's not just yeah. one particular business that wants to get around and change the rules, so, yeah. I just, to put it into some context, especially as we were talking about the limited um, commercial use and residential use, I've seen corner stores in neighborhoods like Visitation Valley that are were so desperately needed in the residential areas and were closed and took so long to reopen because of change of you know ownership of licenses, permits, all that stuff. And I just that type of use is something that I personally want to fight for on this commission because it's it's a walkable, you know, accessible business in a lot of times remote parts of town. Um, so I don't know, as a priority for us, I think that fell under a racial equity recommendation too. Um, so I, I mean, I guess maybe that's something we can talk about as a commission about how do we get some of our planning priorities from our racial equity discussion times back 
back in the conversation, but um, if, if there's a way to expedite a change, uh, a small business reopening in a, in a desperately needed neighborhood, especially like a food business, I would not like to see like an now caller tobacco license prohibiting them from being able to, to be part of a small business like expedited program. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's definitely opportunities to make changes. And I think um, uh, I can chat internally and see if there's been any recent conversations about that, that in particular. But yeah. Great. Thank you. I think that's a really good point from Vice President Sazunas. Um, I think it is a, uh, a new environment post-pandemic where there's a little bit more of an onus on trying to fill some of these vacancies. And maybe we should revisit some of the uh, the perspectives that probably made sense when they were first put into place and maybe aren't the best fit for where we're at right now. Yeah, and I, sorry, I want to correct my earlier statement. I do believe corner stores, if you ha are, have liquor sales, you are eligible for this program. I think it's just, and I don't totally, can't totally read all of that off yeah, this yeah. far, but also don't, have, that's not like, a, but I think it's more of like a liquor store by itself might not be eligible, but if you're a corner store and you've got like 15, 20% of your uh, merchandise devoted to alcohol sales, that would be, you would be eligible for this program. So there are some ways, but yeah, I can confirm on that. It'd be good know. to, yeah, get that notice or that uh, information so that we can share it with that industry too. So if they, you know, are not aware of this type of permitting. Definitely. Yeah. I'll follow up on that. Cool. Thank you. Um, this one's just kind of general, but the majority of the work that we do at the planning department is these building permits. Um, it's a little counterintuitive, but a building permit is what you need as a decision or action to change your use, even if you're doing no building and no construction. Um, so to, to switch from a restaurant that doesn't sell alcohol to one that does, you do need a building permit to vest that change in use. Um, so yeah, building permits are what we see at the at the counter. Um, we also see them in intake, but for small business owners, they're usually at the counter um, or accompanied with a planning case like a conditional use authorization that we're processing. Why is that? It is a part of, I believe, both the planning code and, yeah, mostly the planning code points back to the building, uh, building permit as what is required. Um, we've been looking at ways to find other options for that because there are a lot of no, uh, uh, yeah, a lot of projects that are not doing any construction, no life safety changes, and it's, it's quite simple and it's just a planning vest. So we are exploring opportunities and yeah, I think it's, it's probably a year down the line of like a real new process that would give you just planning approval for that, but that is in the works. It is counterintuitive and it's also very confusing um, and is just one more thing that obfuscates how to move forward, um, you're like, I don't need a building permit. Or you hear about somebody's having problems with their building permit, and you're like, what are they doing in there? Um, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I think it'd be great if, if we could stop calling them building permits and calling them what they are, which is planning permits. Yeah, I think that's exactly it, right? Like we've found, um, you know, Katie and I have worked on some ways to, to find like a, a lesser, in, less intensive requirement of like what a construction of a 20-story residential tower would need to submit. Right. Um, but this new, whatever it's called, planning approval um, is something that we'd have to change um, in the code. But it is 
definitely a priority and, and something that the department is actively working on. So. That'd be great. Um, so yeah, just as to kind of reference what we've been talking about, we are at 49 South End Ness every day. Um, we've got at least three people there at all times, a historic preservation planner in addition to other uh, planners, and we're there with Katie's staff as well, and um, you know, there to answer general questions or to um, sign off on your building permit or you know, just to help you find locations that might work. Um, you know, some people just come in and say, I'm considering these six addresses and I want to know if I'm allowed to operate in which one. Uh, you also don't always have to come in. You can send us an email. Um, it's pic at sfgov.org. And then I know Katie's team will also answer emails with those kind of questions. So uh, there, there's a few different options. But yeah, um, so now I'll go a little bit into what we've changed in small businesses. I know we've already kind of touched on this, but um, you know, this is not news to you all exactly what uh, you're focused on, but um, it, it is a city priority to support <coughs> small businesses. Um, like I've kind of hinted at before, we've made some changes recently, such as removing that 311 notice for some of those principally permitted changes of use adding the shared spaces program, some other uh, programs, expanding that CB3P, um, the creation of a flex retail, giving up businesses the opportunity to try out different things during COVID. Uh, you know, there's, there's some temporary use authorizations where you can open up a different business in a nightclub that maybe was when it was completely shut down during COVID and you really, like no one was going into those places or not allowed to operate. Um, so we've made some changes like that. Question. Uh, we've also, Prop H and the Small Business Recovery Act were kind of the major changes, sorry. It's kind of a random question, but just because we are with Prop H um, allowing accessory uses, um, more accessory use, and I did see that there was a pop-up, 60-day pop-up retail that is allowed in a, in a uh, closed, in a vacant storefront. What, if, if something is closed, even if it's like, closed off hours or it's vacant or whatnot not can it be used as a a private venue yeah so um a good example that we see of this is when uh say a restaurant that's open for dinner service only mm -hmm. will rent out the kitchen space during the day yeah. for someone to prepare food for off-site or a different business um that's an more a little bit simpler because it's very similar uses but there is an opportunity to rent out spaces we just have to add an additional use so it's not like oh you're a restaurant you can't be anything else you could be a restaurant and a bookstore you know you could That's have only if it's like a, trying to do a public offering if it's if you rent it for like a private event uh, that does is there a code triggered there so i think if it's your if it's your own business and you're renting it for private events i think that's not regulated by the planning department if you want to have it be like a different use yeah. for those times. We do have temporary use authorizations for that specifically to say, okay, I'm usually a restaurant, but I want to host some nonprofit gala or something that I'm not going to be serving any food or preparing it, but I want to be able to host these events on whatever basis. So yeah, our temporary use author application um, lists out all the different options. I think we're down to like M or O of the number of options, but um, yeah, those are things that, that can happen really simply they're quick planning approval but they're not intent they tended to be kind of a holdover or something if you don't want to permanently make that change um yeah okay thank you 
Um, so yeah, um, the you know this is this shows where those 311 neighborhood notices were changed from Prop H. Um, you know it was it was never allowed in the areas in blue or never required in the areas of blue. So to change from one business to another in Union Square, you were fine to do that. But in the areas in yellow, namely our neighborhood commercial districts, you needed that neighborhood notice to make that change. So that was um, removed in Prop H. Um, the area that remains where we see the most small businesses is um, the mixed-use districts in um, Soma um, and down in that area. Um, and then, yeah, we've had some, um, you know, the Small Business Recovery Act trailed first year, uh, Prop H. Um, and then we've also had, as I'm sure you're aware, first year free, which has now been extended. Um, so that these are all programs that are helping small businesses um, open quicker and cheaper and have a little bit less regulatory hurdle to get through. Um, yeah. um, so one of the bigger changes we made with Prop H was um, streamlining the permitting process. Previously, um, applicants had to go to every single department individually and ask them, what do I need from you? How do I get approved? And it might be, I mean, it is very difficult to understand that one, that building permit thing we talked about where you need a building permit just to change your use, but that even though you already got your health permit to serve food, you also need the health department to sign off on that building permit. So a lot of people get confused and they're like, well, I already have health approval, but there's two different avenues. So what we did was we, um, took all the requirements of the different city agencies and we turned it into one um, streamlined portal where applicants go through a questionnaire and they answer things like, what location are you at? How big is your business? You know, how many locations do you have worldwide? All of that. And based on that, we let them know, one, if they're principally permitted and if they're able to just open as of right. Um, and then we also give them uh, the a list of all the a list of all the documents that they need to submit. So based on their answers to questions, they will be sent the building permit number, form that they can fill out, a set of a plan submittal requirements. Um, you know, maybe they need some electrical or mechanical forms filled out, uh, link to submit their health permit, their entertainment permit. So that's been a, a huge success with applicants, just at least being able to find all of that out from their home and not have, or, you know, in their business in off hours instead of having to come into the counter to then ask everyone what they need to um, to do to become a, a officially legally established operating business. Um, we also do the review of these permits, these Prop H permits, um, electronically. Um, so we can do them at the counter if you come in or we do them online so you never actually have to come in and you don't have to walk it around and get comments and go back home and then come back the next day. We'll do it all online. This also, um, previously, all permits were in paper, so it had to be sequential. It would go from the planning department to the building department to fire down the line. Now we can all look at it at the same time, give our comments at the same time, so that's really sped up that process. Um, and yes, yeah, so we've had a lot of people use this service. Um, all the permits that are eligible for the 30-day review are getting their permits issued within 30 days. Um, you know, the biggest time change, again, was that getting rid of the conditional use requirement for a lot of businesses and giving them this opportunity to do 14 days versus six to nine months. Um, so, yeah, that's all I have, but I'm happy to answer questions in whatever direction you have. But, uh, yeah.
No, that was really great, really helpful. Um, I learned a lot. Uh, apparently, I had a lot to learn. Uh, D Director Tang. I'll just say really quickly, I'm, I'm so glad that Bridget was the one to present today because she has been just such a huge advocate for small businesses. Uh, I think we talk multiple times a week when we're talking through cases and people going through um, different challenges and we're trying to find creative ways for them to get through the permitting process as quickly as possible. So I really want to thank uh, Bridget and all her work. You could really tell she's passionate about supporting our small businesses in San Francisco. Great. Uh, Commissioner Huey. Yeah, thank you very much for your presentation. Um, uh, just one quick question. In terms of like um, some of the vacant storefronts that are kind of being offered right now as like pop-up spaces and things like that, does anybody need a permit for anything like in that in that scenario? Potentially. Um, if you're going into, a, a, if you're trying to go into a space that was already the same use that was our, there before, you're fine and no permit would be needed. Um, if you, are trying to be something different than what was there before, you might need that temporary use authorization if you're just gonna do something short term. If you're gonna do it longer term, you could do the building permit. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I would say check with planning or the Office of Small Business first to make sure um, we can give you the best advice on that specific location. Thank you so much. Great, Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. I, you actually triggered the question regarding that. Similar, like in the mission, we're gonna start activating spaces with multi-use inside a use like for the bigger, large retailer spaces that are vacant. So is there a designation for a use like that that's multi-use encompassing? There is, yeah. It's called a flexible retail use. Um, okay. I think Katie had some... Say, uh, some Mixed with some food use? Uh, it's flexible retail. So you could do a few different things. Um, there's a list of what, what is eligible. You can kind of switch between them. In addition to that, we also allow accessory uses and that's about a third of the floor area, and you could kind of do that without extra approval. You could be a restaurant and have a bookstore in the corner and sell the those kind of things, and so. That was something that Prop, Prop H, H also yeah, yeah. expanded. Yeah. Um, so first, um, thank you for the presentation, awesome. I also wanna just thank planning department in general. Like growing up, planning was always my community's adversary, number one, right? It's definitely changed. I know Director Hillis has done a tremendous job. They're trying to shift culture and, and hoping have a new planning 50 years from now, right? And departmentally, Commissioner, one of our my co-commissioners, Carter, we serve on the Equity Council for the planning department. So really having community at the birth of a lot of these planning ideas, I, I feel, I, I sense the change in culture. And, and even as a small business, it's not as um, scary to come planning or, or like kind of rude. It used to be like if you didn't have money, because I know you're self-funded, right? Like you don't get city budget, but it's changing. So I want to say thank you for that. And um, I did just have n not a question to be answered, but I, I definitely want to put this on the map every time I get. Definitely with ghost kitchens coming up and, and the complexity and what I call them, you know, extraction of wealth. That's all they are in my eyes, most of them. Um, just let's continue to work together, you know, especially off of small business. I know the pandemic, we kind of like stopped that process, but I am really concerned about ghost kitchens, just down the line. Commissioner Huey. Uh, just speaking um, 
again to like culture. Um, I, I just wanted to share, I guess this is that the Small Business Commission has been working on the survey for small businesses. And um, I've been able to kind of get just very preliminary um, data off of that. And so um, this is kind of like a sneak peek into perhaps one of the thoughts that came out of it, um, is that small business owners, you know, we tend to be people who, who kind of dream and think like big or think, um, possibilities, right? We tend to be the types of people who are really excited about possibilities. And then they get to City Hall, or they get to the planning department, or they get to wherever, and then they start to hear no's. And I think, you know, that's been kind of the general sentiment for a lot of the, the responses from the small business survey so far, is that it's not even so much that, you know, I personally got stuck in in planning for three months, six months, three years, whatever it is, right? Like, it's really this sentiment that the city just wants to say no before before ever saying yes, right? And so, um, so I just figured I would just take the opportunity to just share that with you, since I don't know when I might see you after the <laughs> the survey results come out. But just knowing that, you know, I appreciate the um, the direction that the planning department is going in, and that you know, hopefully, this can spread throughout kind of the way people think about how they interact with individuals. Right? That this is somebody who's coming to you with a possibility somebody who's really excited about something that they can bring to the community. Generally, small business owners are not, I've, I've never really met small business owners who are really just out for themselves. I mean, they're really bringing things to the community and they wanna share something with their neighborhood and they wanna make the place better. So I think just keeping in mind that these are, are people with hopes and dreams and, um, and hopefully, you know, thinking of, of planning as a possibility versus a a place of like uh, compliance, so. Definitely, yeah, I think a lot of the, with a lot of the legislation changes in the past few years, you know, a lot of things have loosened up, so it's no longer, there are a lot more times where we say yes than when we used to say no. And then also having Katie's team at the Permit Center really helps us to say, you know, I can tell you this site won't work out for you, but you know, I can send you over to the Office of Small Business and Katie's staff will be able to like, help you find a location that might work better or help you explore some loans and grants to like get those plans drawn or whatever it is you need. So yeah, I think it's a, uh, we've definitely had a lot more interagency collaboration over the past few years and it's really, we know a lot more about what the health department requires and they know what we require. So there's, yeah, it's definitely changing. Yeah, I appreciate that. Cool, thank you so much. The analogy I always use is I, I want the city to feel like a warm hot tub where the business can just slide in, we give them a drink, we're there with a towel, <laughs> just relax. That's, I, I feel like if we can just directionally orient around that concept, our businesses Prince, will have- permit the whole city as a massage venue. I just think that our, our businesses will, will have such an easier time and feel so much more welcomed and, um, Anyways, that's that's how I think about it. Mm, yeah. Love it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do we have uh, a we're, we're all done? Okay. Uh, do we have any public comment? <laughs>
We do. We have one public commenter on the phone. Wonderful. Thank you, public commenter, for waiting. Please proceed. Hi there, this is Kristen Evans. I wear a couple hats. I'm a small business owner in the Haight-Ashbury, and I'm on the boards of the Haight-Ashbury Merchants Association and the Council of District Merchants Association. Thank you so much for the presentation. Found it really helpful. I um, was curious um, if you could touch on the uh, process of what um, uh, happens when a business opens in a space not zoned for the use that is per permitted. Um, I wanted to confirm, is it generally only when it is complaint-based? Um, uh, is it possible for a business to potentially operate in an unauthorized or unzoned space for their use for many months or years? Um, and can can it be remedied? Would it be remedied based on a complaint like years later? And then the second is, you know, is there an opportunity for the business to remedy um, if they've opened in a, a, the wrong spot? Um, are they allowed to operate while they're remedying or are they forced to close? And then specifically, if you could talk about um, what type of punishment is meted out by planning to, to businesses that have opened in the wrong space? Are, do they receive fines or how, how does that, what does enforcement actually look like? Thanks. Yeah, Bridget, go ahead. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, yes, the planning department is mostly complaint driven. We don't have enough staff um, to go out and do active enforcement of all these places, but um, our first goal with any complaint and enforcement action is to just get compliance. We're not in the business of trying to make money off of those complaints. So um, we send out first just a notice of a complaint to let the applicant know or the business owner know that someone has complained. And then we say, okay, we're gonna investigate this, see if this complaint is actually a violation of the planning code or if it's not. Um, if it's deemed to be a notice of a, a violation of the planning code, we'll issue a notice of that. And then we'll work with the business owner to find a way um, to either legalize the use in the existing space, which can often be just getting that building permit for, you know, and using first year free to get those fees waived and just coming in and getting that done real simply, um, could require a conditional use. If you were in an instance where you opened in a location where you're not um, allowed to operate at all or like, you, you need the conditional use and it doesn't make sense to get, continue to stay there. Um, we usually do, once, once you've taken some action to demonstrate that you are making an effort to come into compliance, um, we won't be assessing penalties and fees. So once you've taken that step of working with us, you've started to fill out, you've submitted a building permit, you're starting those directions. We don't charge fees during that time, especially when 100% when it's on our, our reason why you're not in compliance because you're going through our process. But yeah, our, our goal is to work with um, small business owners to find a way to come into compliance. Um, and I think, yeah, Katie's team is a great resource to find out where could be a better fit if that location does not work. Um, but yeah, usually there's an option to just get the building permit real simply or um, to maybe use the CB3P program to get a quick conditional use. I think that was both. I think you got it. 
Um, we'll loop back. If not, I know Kristen. So, um, Rick, did you have? Yeah, go ahead. Good evening, Commissioners. Uh, Richard Carrillo. Uh, full disclosure, as you know, I work for the Office of Small Business, but I am speaking to you today as a resident of San Francisco. Um, prior to me moving to San Francisco 15 years ago, I lived in San Diego for 15 years. Um, and thank you very much, Bridget, for that wonderful presentation. Um, in San Diego, we had community planning groups, um, which I thought was a really great process. Um, and I have just a little thing I'm going to read from, from their website. Uh, community planning groups are formal mechanisms for community input in the land use decision-making process. Um, they provide citizens with an opportunity for involvement in advising the city council, which is like our board of supervisors, the planning commission, and other decision-makers uh, on development projects, general or community plan amendments, rezonings, and public facilities. The recommendations of the planning groups are integral components of the planning process and are highly regarded by the city council and by staff. And it sounds like an extra layer of bureaucracy, and it is an extra layer of planning, but it's a very important layer, which I think would work really well in San Francisco, because right now when you have to go to the community groups, you know, there's like the merchants group, and there's the neighborhood group, and there's another neighborhood group, and another neighborhood group from this part of the neighborhood, and, you know, it's, it gets to be really crazy. and. Um, a community planning group would just be one group that, you know, the planning department could go to. And the way it works in San Francisco is they're elected, so citizens uh, can um, apply, and they they're elected by the people who you know attend those meetings. And so, um, and you can each community group is a little bit different. You know, they might have one seat specifically for this neighborhood group. You know, one one seat for a business group, or it could just be completely open. Um, also, I think it, it would go really well with the neighborhood groups that the planning already has. Um, so if you can imagine a planning group, um, citizens planning group for each of those neighborhood groups, I think that would work really well. So I just wanted to take this opportunity to bring this idea forward. I think it's a really great idea. Uh, I really miss it. I was on the, the North Park Planning uh, Committee uh, for a few years, and um, I thought it was a, a really great process. So, so. so Rick, we're, we're not supposed to ask people during public comment, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, so if, if I understand you correctly, the community planning group replaces all of the other. It's like one-stop shopping. Um, it's kind of like small business development center of community groups, right? Like you, yep. you, you just go in and you talk to one group of people, and that's it. You've, you've checked the box for your community outreach. <clears throat> I guess the question I have is on a real practical level. Um, you know, usually community groups have um, influence because they represent a lot of voters and it's hard to get elected without support from voters. So I'm a little unclear as like how we'd make the transition to uh, these groups, uh, a community planning group, you know, replacing these these other, you know, like sort of natural expressions of of of, of, of voters. Uh, In San Diego, we still had, you know, I worked for the North Park Business Improvement District, North Park mm -hmm. Main Street. Um, we also had a community group, and we had a lighting and landscape maintenance district, and they were all there. And we actually, as the I was on the business improvement district and the planning group, um, we. Um, were so important in the business district that we asked them to come to us anyway. Right. Um, but they didn't have to if they didn't want to. But you know, once we added our voice to 
you know, and the support in addition to the planning group that was really helpful. So, you know, the option is still there for them to go to the other planning groups if they want, and the planning groups all still existed, but a lot of those other neighborhood groups came to the planning meeting and were able to speak there. Interact um, so, there. Yeah, yeah, so it was a really good uh, It's an interesting concept. Doesn't the planning com commission or, or department have an a racial equity advisory or something? We can't talk about this item. I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, so I just we, wanted to bring that up. Thank you so much. We went way off the reservation there. <laughs> okay, okay. Thank okay. you. Uh, I know I is there any more public comment? It just made me think about it. There's yeah. none. Yeah. Um, sorry, I, I took a very liberal approach toward our rules of order tonight. Um, okay, uh, seeing none. Uh, there's no, this is an action item, so the item is closed. Bridget, thank you very much for taking your time. I learned a lot. Uh, and then I believe we're going to skip, is that right? Are we skipping now? Yes, to number item number six. No? Should we then go back to item number five? Yeah? Okay. Uh, we will, next item, please. Item five, approval of draft meeting minutes. This is a discussion and action item to approve the November 24th, 2022 draft meeting minutes. Okay, commissioners, any comments or questions on the minutes? Okay, now we'll see if there's any public comment. There's none. Seeing none, public comment is closed. I move to approve the minutes. I second. Motion by President Laguana, seconded by Commissioner Healy. Commissioner Carter, Dickerson, and Herbert are absent. Commissioner Huey? Yes. President Laguana? Yes. Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena? Yes. And Vice President Zizunas? Yes. Motion passes. Great. Next item, please. Item six resolution making findings to allow teleconferenced meetings under California Government Code 54953E. This is a discussion and action item. I don't see any uh, commissioner comments or questions. Is there any public comment? There's none. Seeing none, public comment is closed. Uh, move to approve the motion. Uh, I second. Motion by President Laguana, seconded by Commissioner Huey. Commissioner Carter Dickerson and Herbert are absent. Commissioner Huey. Yes. President Laguana. Yes. Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. Yes. Vice President Zazunas. Yes. Motion passes. Great. Next item, please. Item seven, general public comment. This is a discussion <coughs> item allowing members of the public to comment generally on matters that are within the Small Business Commission's jurisdiction, but not on today's calendar, and suggest new agenda items. Are there any public commenters on the line? There are none. Seeing none, public comment is closed. Next item, please. Item eight, director's report. This is a discussion item. All right, uh, good evening, I'll make this quick. Um, so just wanted to share, in case you missed it, uh, that the city launched the graffiti abatement pilot program um, last month. So at the end of November, it's a pilot, so it'll run through November of 2023. Uh, there was $4 million allocated over two years for the program, uh, thanks to Supervisor Melgar. Um, eligible properties are within neighborhood commercial districts and neighborhood uh, commercial transit corridors. Um, I expect you to know what that is now, that you have Planning 101. Um, <laughs> property owners must sign off on two forms, one to opt into the program, and the second one is a waiver to allow the city to abate the graffiti. Uh, it would be free of charge. Uh, so we really want to thank Supervisor Melgar for working with this commission um, on the legislation after um, all of you expressed concerns that small business owners, often the victims of, of vandalism, have had to spend time cleaning up graffiti or pay for it or um, their leases require them to do so um, instead of the property owner. 
Secondly, uh, third-party delivery uh, apps. So if uh, especially food-based businesses that work with uh, companies like DoorDash, Uber Eats, Grubhub, uh, there was a lawsuit against the city. Um, there, um, and so there are some new things uh, that are coming into effect starting January 31st of 2023. Um, so businesses that use the third-party delivery services, they need to review their contracts um, by January 30th of next year. And businesses will likely need to enter into a new agreement if they want to take into uh, take advantage of the 15% uh, fee option moving forward. So if businesses don't uh, do that, then they will be charged uh, whatever fee is stated in their existing agreement, which could be higher than 15% uh, starting January 31st. So again, if you can help with the outreach um, to, uh, again, food-based businesses or anyone that uses these services, that would be very helpful, although we're trying to um, get at the outreach at various angles. So um, thank you for your assistance. And then lastly, just a reminder for shared spaces that applications for the permanent program are due January 15th of 2023. Um, also, please help spread the word. Um, the sooner that businesses can engage with the city on what the compliance requirements are, um, the better that we can all come to solutions together. So um, I'll keep my updates at that. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Any commissioner comments or questions? Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. For the opt-in, um, I actually went through the motion today. I only found one page that I had assigned to opt-in. They're gonna respond eventually. Um, so in response to that, um, when there's actually graffiti on a property, then you would contact 311. Um, to, to get in touch with DPW. Mm -hmm. And then uh, before the graffiti would be abated, uh, the property owner would need to sign a waiver form. So there should be two forms that property owners would need to sign and submit to the city. So today I, I, I sent one that's yeah. from the, to opt in. Is there graffiti um, on the property right now? No. So at that point when there is graffiti, you would want to, um, Again, uh, submit uh, an inquiry or request to, to DPW through 311, and then uh, they would ask that you sign the waiver form prior to the city actually abating the graffiti. Okay. Uh, I did see uh, today that there were some crews out painting as a result of the legislation. Um, so uh, aside from uh, thanking Supervisor Melgar for leading on this, I would also like to thank very much um, uh, Interim Director, uh, Interim Director, Interim DPW Director Carla Short. Uh, she was really great at helping get, getting this up and going. And of course, uh, would like to thank the DPW paint crew. Um, we're actually really funny and friendly uh, to hang out with in person. <laughs> Okay, uh, any other commissioner comments or questions? Seeing none, is there any public comment? There is one uh, caller on the line. Okay, uh, public caller, please proceed. Hi, this is Kristen Evans uh, from the Haight-Ashbury Merchants Association. Um, I uh, appreciate uh, Director Tang's uh, report um, I did uh, talk with her earlier and understood that the graffiti abatement program does not apply to Parklets. I think that was a mistake and an oversight. I think it should have included Parklets, and I hope that we would take that into consideration once we evaluate at the end of the completion of the pilot. Um, 
Additionally, I, I understood that there isn't like um, communication outside of her newsletter currently to explain the process, uh, clearly to small businesses. And so obviously as a merchant association uh, board member, I would look forward to seeing those materials so I can help educate and do outreach to our members. And, and finally, I, um, a little unclear on the contracts or the delivery fees if um, the businesses need to enter into new contracts, what if their contract does not yet expire? Is there like some provision in the settlement that they are automatically um, open for renegotiation at the stage? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, is there any other public comment? There is none. Public comment is closed. Um, I, uh, uh, Director Tang, if, if you want to respond to the. Uh, I will follow up with the public commenter one-on-one um, uh, -on -one individually. Okay, great. Uh, okay, um, next item. Item nine, commissioner discussion and new business. This is a discussion item. Commissioners, anything you want to <coughs> bring up? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll bring something up. Um, I realize that we, if do we have something like a, a fee ombudsman or anything like, like hmm. that in our city, um, or is there a channel um, where small businesses can express? I mean, I know we are the channel where they can express <laughs> their concern, but uh, for specific fees or that. Um, are, are burdening a certain industry and there's a lot of um, small businesses wanting to express their, con their, their feelings on it on a particular fee that um, has an annual increase. Like I'm specifically talking about the cigarette litter abatement fee which has just been increased. Is that voted on? Is that something that just automatically happens? Is like where in time can a small business weigh in on something like that? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, so s litter abatement, I'm assuming that's DPW. Mm -hmm. um, the yeah, just because, I, you know, for, for, a, for a small business sector that doesn't necessarily know of us as a body or doesn't have yeah. time to come make general comment, um, I would love to, d you know, direct public comment that comes to me directly <laughs> to, you know, a receptacle where it can be housed on record um, in regards to, to, a, to a fee schedule. And um, I know I've mentioned that there is a fee justice project within TTX. I'd love to understand how, that how it can relate to small business. Right now it's really heavy on quality of life fees for individuals. Um, and I would love to see if there was interest in that becoming the receptacle for hearing uh, um, this from the small business community. Um, yeah, I just wanted to put, put that out there um, as it is not something that is like ubiquitously, you know, there may not be a fee that everybody uh, experiences. So yeah. um, I think it would be better if, if small businesses could comment on that particular fee instead of a general comment. Um, I was just wondering if there was some kind of 
I mean, we could add it as, uh, you know, once we find out what the underlying legislation is, we could. It's in the administrative code, and so um, this body certainly can listen to discussion and feedback about it. However, we wouldn't be able to actually make the change. We could recommend changes after listening to comments, but we would need a legislative sponsor to ultimately make any changes. And when, and when fees uh, are renewed each year or increased even if they're like delinquent in reporting or or nexus studies like is there no public hearing that they go before uh i mean many fees are they could be structured differently but for example what could be baked into an ordinance that set a fee initially could say well every year it's going to increase by you know cpi or there's going to be a an adjustment every year automatically so not necessarily uh would be a renewal of this ordinance every year it's just again, baked into it. Um, but again, every fee is structured differently. So mm -hmm. we can certainly um, look into yeah, what the so, specific wording is. Yeah, so what we could do is we could look at how does the fee increase and what is the schedule that it's on. Um, and then um, what we could do to maybe sort of help precipitate finding, you know, if we couldn't just by talking to people find a, a natural legislative sponsor for fixing it, assuming that there's interest in that. We could have a short agenda item on it, and then businesses impacted by that could call in and, and you know, during public comment and, and talk about it, and mm -hmm. maybe that creates a little bit of an impetus for somebody, Making to, a be, precedent. For somebody to be a legislative sponsor to, to mm -hmm. change it a little bit. I think, yeah. we, um, I think we need to find out a little bit more about like how it works and how mm -hmm. it changes so that we're, yeah, so that we're yeah. doing it in the most efficient way. My question was just, yeah, is there any ombudsman, you know, like uh, pathway to this already, but I guess not. Yeah. Yeah. Commissioner Huey. Hi, um, I just wanted to mention a couple of things, a short list. Um, congratulations to Commissioner Dickerson, who celebrated her uh, holiday gala, I think is how it was pronounced at the party. <laughs> and um, she's not here tonight, but, um, you know, Mayor, Mayor Breed was there and announced, I believe it was December 10th, 2023. Was it the 10th on Saturday night? Yeah, U3 Fit Day. So um, congratulations to her. Um, it was a wonderful event. It was really fun. Lots of desserts, lots of dancing. Um, the other thing was, oh, um, Art Walk in Bayview. We finished this year with um, several Art Walks this year, and, um, and the last one was in Bayview, and that was wonderful. It, had, it included um, participation from pretty much all of the Bayview groups, like all of the Bayview merchants groups, which was wonderful. And it happened at Public Glass. I don't know if anybody's been to Public Glass to blow glass before, but it is an amazing venue. Have you been there to? Oh, we should, we should go on a field trip. This. It's a huge glass blowing studio and it's amazing. And I believe one of the artists was actually on that like reality show, Blown Away. So we, it's, we had them, we voted on them, didn't we? Yeah, I, or, I don't remember. I think we I did because they do like jo training, right? I don't remember, maybe, yeah. But it, it was, it, we had probably <laughs> 35 artists and merchants um, cool. there and um, definitely it was prioritized where we had a lot of Bayview um, artists and merchants. So um, that was really cool to see all the groups working together to produce such a, uh, 
fantastic event. Um, lastly, I was going to mention that I got to tour Winter Wonderland with um, Marissa um, Rodriguez. Yes. Rodriguez. And she is amazing. She <laughs> walked me up and down uh, the street and wanted to show me all of the possibilities for Winter Wonderland. And so if you have not been down there yet, I would suggest taking a look and seeing what they've done. They, I believe um, they imported all of these booths from, is it Austria? I don't, you don't. <laughs> and so they came from Europe. So these are like actual like European booths for um, vending. And so there's a, there's like a cable coffee cart and everything, but there's an opportunity for, um, for I believe like liquor, like beer, uh, there's a stage. It's going to be quite a party this holiday season. So I would suggest everybody going out there. It's in the, um, is that Powell Street? Yeah, it's in the Powell Street station. So um, definitely check it out. And um, yeah, those are a couple of the small business opportunities that, um, or small business things that I've been up to. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. Yeah, first I want to ditto, yeah, the Wonderland, Marissa's killing it. Um, she did a presentation at the LTF. I was sick, so I didn't attend even though I invited her. But um, vendors could go and set up for free. They just got it. So it's, it's, it's just dope. It's actually, they actually get a stipend. See, so, she went the other way. Yeah. <laughs> and and what she's done and what the mayor's done in, in Union Square, like I, I took the kids out there the other day and I felt safe. My daughter felt safe. She's my barometer because she's really picky about safety and cleanliness. So she's seven years old. So, um, so good job on that. Um, on the 16th, Friday the 16th at the 24th Street Bar Plazas, we are activating the space from 5 to 9 p.m. Um, we're going to have mariachis. We're going to decorate both bar plazas. At the COVID Center, which is the Cap Street parking lot one block away, we're going to have a Santa. We're going to have line reindeers. We're going to have a snow machine. Um, we want families to come to activate the commercial corridor, come by. Everything's free. Enjoy yourself. Shop at the local businesses in the surrounding area. Um, I'll be out there. There's going to be ponche, maybe some spiked ponche. I don't know. So enjoy Friday the 16th from 5 to 9. Great. Uh, the 16th. Yeah, okay. I won't be there. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I, I'm like terrible. I didn't go to Lawanda's thing either. I had it in my calendar, but um, yeah, I had a fundraiser. Um, you know, before we close, uh, on the cigarette, going back to the cigarette fees for a second. So apparently it's um, <coughs> entirely up to the city controller and the fee has to produce revenues sufficient to support the services and activities, which is basically litter, uh, litter cleanup. We don't need to go into the yeah. whole fee. We, this yeah. was on the economic mitigation list. We have all the background. I was just m I mainly see. asking if there was for since we have a fee justice project that exists with TTX, like, is there, do TTX hear public comment about fees? That, that was kind of my question. No, no. yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's totally the controller. The controller I, I guess. hear public comment about no. fees? No. They produce a report to show uh -huh. how much it should increase by each year. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh -huh. So, 
I, I think, you know, to, to change it, some kind of ordinance change. And so yeah. then we would need to think Legi about, like... Policy back to the yeah, legislative. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. exactly. Okay. So All right. We can't say shit. Uh, are we good? Anybody else? Okay. Uh, is there any public comment on the line? There's none. Okay. Seeing none, public comment is closed. Next item. Item 10, <clears throat> adjournment. Sec uh, SF Cub TV, please show the Office of Small Business slide. We will end with a reminder that the Small Business Commission is the official public forum to voice your opinions and concerns about policies that affect the economic vitality of small businesses in San Francisco, and that the small Office of Small Business is the best place to get answers about doing business in San Francisco during the local emergency. If you need assistance with small business matters, continue to reach out to the Office of Small Business. Meeting adjourned. <laughs>